0: Hi Hi, I'm Dana I'm Kristen This is the Darker Side of Life This is the podcast where two best friends tell each other Creepy, weird, strange, bizarre, out there Unexplained stories
1: But we don't tell each other what we're going to talk about So this is going to be like probably a classic true crime story I'm guessing you've probably heard of it But I don't know how much you know of it Okay Probably bum you out Um. Probably make you shake your head Probably. Always. Just the whole gambit. So pretty much. All right. So I'm going to talk about the Velisca X murders.
0: <gasps> oh, I like this story. Do you know this story? Yes. And I do like this story. Okay, good.
1: I hope I can bring some new information.
0: To but I want to hear it from for you.
1: you. Um, I found an awesome blog that has so much information on this. And there's this guy who's been, and I'll talk a little bit about him. He's been researching this case since the fifties. So yes, he as like a college student, he started looking into this case. So um, I found a lot more information than just like the surface stuff that I hear in a lot of podcasts, not saying that that's bad, but yeah, um, I hope I can go a little more. It's like a deep dive. Yes. I honestly knew nothing about this case until this year. Really? Didn't like I had heard of a, of the Velisca axe murders. I yeah. heard of it. I somehow connected it to the axe murders in New Orleans, like the oh, axe they're kind murders are similar. They're, they're kind very similar. similar, which I I knew about, but it was never one that I was really interested in. It was kind of yeah. like, oh, okay, I learned about it and then that was it. So I would hear about Velisca I would see videos and I would just be like, oh, that's that case and ignore it. And then I was watching an episode. It's actually a ghost hunting show called Kindred Spirits. They will talk about because the one of the hosts has a podcast. It's probably one of the better like ghost hunting shows out there. Yeah. Uh, But they... There was an episode on Villisca, so I was like, okay, whatever. I'll watch it. And then I realized, I'm like, oh, this is a totally different case. <laughs> like, this is totally new. But it's um, so interesting. It's really interesting. It's so sad, too. Yeah, that's why I said I'm going to bum you out. And just a like heads up, there are kids involved in this. Oh, yeah. And I will be as respectful as possible. There are some things I have to talk about because... You kind of have to talk about them to understand what happened, but I will be, I won't go into a lot of detail with the kids because I know that that's really hard. So if you have a hard time listening to stuff with kids, then you either want to skip this or just kind of prepare yourself. So it is a very interesting case though, I will say. All right. So my sources, actually don't skip it. I take that back. Never skip one of our things. (laughs) Just... (laughs) <laughs> just just be prepared because i think fa- hit, the fast, button, like the, hit the fast forward button like 30 seconds button yeah just
0: 30 seconds fast forward yeah
1: um okay so my sources um wikipedia obviously i listened to a um georgia marie video on youtube i love georgia marie. i love georgia she's great um and, like, her video was great, but then she had her list of sources, which sent me, oh, wow. like, it gave me sources. So, <laughs> I'm like, this is perfect. The Haunted Road Podcast with Amy Bruni. She is also the host of Kindred Spirits, and she just started this podcast. Um, there is a Vice article that I'm not going to read the title because it has to do with paranormal. I will, like, briefly touch on the paranormal in this okay. at the end. So, I don't want to read the title because it'll give away kind of one of the big paranormal experiences there okay yes um which i bet you don't know which that's probably be not because i just
0: know the true crime aspect of mm-hmm. it not so much the paranormal aspect of it
1: yeah this was going to be a two-part with half of it being paranormal but yeah i just i'm not comfortable without having been there to actually like write yeah. a whole podcast for it um the smithsonian magazine had a great article on it the des moines register um, veliscaiowa.com and iowacocases.org. All right, so a little bit about velisca just to kind of understand the town we're coming into. It is a town in Montgomery County, Iowa. It's in like the southwest part of the state, I would say, yeah. towards like the bottom corner. In 2019, the population was about 1,142. But in 1910, so this was the 1910 census, about two years before all of this happened, the um, population was a little more bustling. It was like just over 2,000. So
0: (laughs) I like the way a little more bustling is just over
1: 2,000. Over 2,000. (laughs) But you think it's this? You know, it's the 1900s. For a
0: small town, I mean, I
1: guess that's pretty big. Yeah, they had a lot going on. They had they had a lot. So. Um, It seems like the population kind of peaked between 1920 and 1930, and then it has declined ever since. So, small town.
0: Yep, that Great Depression will do that in that part of the world. Yeah, absolutely. Or the country, I should say.
1: According to VilliscaHistory.org, the town was first known as a settlement called the Forks, and it sat between the Middle and West Notaway River. So the first part of the town was laid out in about 1858 by a D.N. Smith of Chicago, and he named it Villisca. It was a word meaning quote, pretty place or, quote, pleasant view in Native American. So I was okay. like, okay, well, what Native American? Like, yeah, which can... tribe? Yes, because I, like <laughs> it just listed Native American. I'm like, well, there's many Native American, and they all speak different <laughs> okay. languages. So I kind of want to know what Native American. Probably is. a regional tribe of that right. area. I so... did look at, look it up. I tried to find. I tried to first find the word Velisca like to like clear, yeah. like make sure that that did mean pretty place in pleasant view. I couldn't, but I did find that there were a couple tribes in that area. There was the. Oto tribe, Mm -hmm. O T O E, O T O, yeah, A T O T O E Otoe, Oto. Sorry, I don't know. (laughs) Um, And or the Missouria, so Missouri with an "n" in the end. Cool. Those were kind of the tribes in that area at the time. So. They just said, you know, that word Velisca originated from the original inhabitants of the area. So, this is why podcasts take me so long because I'm like, okay, Native American. What Native American? You go American? down holes I rabbit, holes. rabbit holes. <laughs> I went several with this one, like several. <laughs> but, so but to me, that's I, important. I'm like, I, you, you got to tell me more.
0: I didn't know there was a tribe called like the Missouri. Or how you said, like, Missouri with an A on the end? Mm-hmm. Is that why some people say, pronounce it Missouri, and Missouri? some people pronounce it Missouri? I have no idea.
1: I just thought no that idea. was an accent
0: thing, but maybe it has something to do with the, Missouri? Missouri? with the fact that there was a tribe there.
1: Yeah, I don't know. But I also did read that the word for evil spirit is Walliska. Oh. With a W, which I'm not sure if it's true, but I thought that was interesting. A little odd considering... What happens in this area? So, Wallisca. I tried to find huh. it, and it just kept bringing up the same article that I found when yeah. I would Google Willisca. So Possible.
0: Interesting.
1: By the early 1900s, the main source of income was from agriculture, but there were also hotels, restaurants, stores, theaters, and manu- manufacturing companies in Willisca. So, that's why I say it was bustling. Like, there's wow. There's a lot going on. But there was also a train depot. So that created, you know, you have those small towns back then with trains that came through every single day. It brought yeah. in a lot of people. Um, and Velisco is no different. There were about 40 trains that would come and go every day. So you wow. have a lot of, yeah, it was, it was busy. So you do have a lot of strangers that are coming in. One of the residents, um, I read, a, she had testified that, you know, leading up to these murders, like there were a lot of strangers in town there are a lot of peddlers that were in town selling their mm-hmm. goods she said she remembered a man going door to door like washing wallpaper Like that was just normal then people came into town and they needed money and it was like hey like my services I can wash your wallpaper for you or that's weird <laughs> yeah but that was normal then it, that's just yeah. kind of how it was now if somebody walks on the door knocks on my door and is like let me wash your walls I'd be like call the police this nowadays if somebody- <laughs> <gonna> kill me <laughs> nowadays if
0: somebody knocks on our doors you just don't answer and just watch yeah. them walk oh God, away no, i pretend like i'm
1: <laughs> gone i'm like anybody anybody who's knocking on my door i already know is coming so yeah if
0: i don't expect you you're not gonna you're not gonna right. get an answer so
1: which is kind of sad i i think it'd be fun yeah. to go back to the days where like you have people coming by to wash your wallpaper and it's totally fine
0: like in the 70s, no wonder they had so many serial killers.
1: But this was in the 1900s. Yeah, still. So. Though.
0: It's even easier to get away with back then. Can you imagine how many people got murdered or serial killers or committed major crimes back in the day and just were never caught because it was so easy to get away with back then? Mm-hmm. You didn't yeah. have surveillance. You didn't have forensics. You barely had police departments yeah, in some places. Yeah, but people,
1: crimes were solved. I always think of Pearl Bryan. I'm like, that was solved from a shoe like that's crazy forensics but that was solved from a shoe so i mean stuff to get solved then it was just done in a very different way we're kind of spoiled now with what we have yeah um i always wonder (laughs) we're
0: spoiled in the way we can solve
1: crimes (laughs) well i think we've got forensics like we have so much more available to us to test for forensics and now with like um you know dna matches that we can look back in databases and connect them through family like, you know that's i always think about if somebody from 1900s villisca could see what we do now it'd be like holy crap we could blow their mind like you can okay okay <laughs> i'm gonna put down the axe now i'm not here I'm <laughs> gonna do it i'm gonna leave i have second thoughts in 1912, just a little fact about the town, there was an armory that was constructed on the north side of town. It was publicly funded. It housed Company F, and they would go on to assist in Mexico, World War I, World War II, Korea, and Vietnam. Wow. So, yeah. So the town had a lot going on. But what the city is most known for is what happened in June 1912. And oh, when you look up Velisca, like the town's history is not the first thing that pops up. It is Where's the Axe Murders. It's the murders of the Moore family and the Stillinger sisters or the Velisca mm. Axe Murders. You pull up Google, you Google it, and it's like Axe Murder House. It's, I Aww. mean, it's there. So, yes. So it's kind of helped bring tourism into the town now, but at the expense of, people were killed so I do want to talk about the victims obviously get to know them a little bit so the Moore family consisted of Josiah B known also as Joe or JB and I will refer to him mostly as Joe Mm -hmm. but if you hear me slip up and say Josiah that's who it is okay he was 43 years old his wife Sarah was 39 they had four children Herman who was 11, Mary Catherine, or Catherine as she's referred to, was 10, Arthur was 7, and Paul was 5 years old. The family lived at 508 East 2nd Street. They were a very well-known family. They were uh, well off. They were liked in the community. There didn't seem to be many problems. There was kind of one issue we will talk about, uh, but everyone seemed to like them. They lived in uh Joe and Sarah had lived in Velisca for about 13 years, and Joe was a businessman. He worked selling farm and agriculture equipment. He -hmm. worked in the John Deere Enterprise, which, as you know, John John Deere Deere. is the main company when it comes to farm equipment, like the company now for farm equipment. And it was big back then. It was was a big deal. Um, Joe had worked for about seven years for a man named Frank Jones or F.F. Jones, as he's sometimes referred to. Frank Jones was a local businessman and state senator who owned a farm equipment company and he had bought a company that Joe worked for and Joe became like one of his top salesmen, like really nice was really good at what he did. And Joe eventually left Frank Jones's business apparently over a dispute that Joe was expected to work um, six days a week, 7am to 11pm. Jeez. (laughs) Right. And he's like, no, not doing that. I mean <laughs> you,
0: good for you, Joe.
1: Yeah. I understand so, farming's
0: a big operation,
1: but geez. Right. Farming is one thing. Farming is twenty four hours, it seems like. But like farm equipment business, like you got you got four kids. You gotta go home at some point. Joe left the business to start his own and he took the John Deere account with him, which oh. was a huge deal. So he became Frank Jones's primary rival, and it created a lot of attention. And I talk about this now, just touching on it, because we are going to talk about Frank Jones a lot more lately. So mm-hmm. he comes back into the picture. But so there was a little bit of bad blood there. I mean, John Deere was big enough at the time that it was a big deal that Josiah had taken it. The family attended the local Presbyterian church, and this was where they were the either the night of or the night before the murders, because we don't really know what time the murders happened. But on Sunday, they were at this church. We're going to start off on Sunday. So this is um, Sunday, June 9th, 1912. The Moore family was set to attend a Children's Day celebration at their church, and Sarah Moore had helped organize it. So it's kind of like a end of Bible school Like, Mm -hmm. going into the summer, it was just kind of kicking off summer and kind of show off what the kids knew.
0: I like that they still do stuff like that, like, way back when.
1: Yeah, I mean, we still do it now. We do, like, vacation Bible school and stuff.
0: I feel like now, like, you think back in, like, the 1900s or 1800s and you just kind of think of at least – I do sometimes like it was a hard life back then and it wasn't easy and it's Mm -hmm. just there's not a lot to do because it's not like you had tv and cell phones or whatever but I like the fact that they're having like church picnics and yeah like vacation bible school parties for the kids and potlucks and stuff
1: yeah no it's definitely like I mean I grew up in catholic church but but still like we did family reunions and everything so it's kind of that vibe of like getting together But it does seem like an like a 1900s type of thing, like getting together for church service and then potluck and picnics, and so it was kind of. And I guarantee you that party would last all day. Well, we're gonna actually talk about that day about everything that went on. It's just it's like the whole day was spent like going back and forth between home and church. (laughs) So, (laughs) um, but also at the Children's Day celebration would be two sisters who were friends with Catherine Moore. Their names were Lena and Ina Stillinger. So yeah, like I said, I want to talk about the day of Sunday, June 9th. And I got so much information from the blog. It's called the 1912 Veliska X Murders blog, with a lot of information from this Dr. Epperly who researched it since the 50s. But I was excited to find out like more about that day. Because so much of what you read about this and what you watch about this and listen about this, it just starts off with the murders. And I'm like, but I want to know yeah. more about the people and I want to mm-hmm. know more about what happened that day and like what their day was like and what the town was like. So I got to learn more about kind of what had happened even around town that day. So I wanted to kind of go more into that and just talk about like what the families were doing that day because. And
0: plus somebody
1: was a murderer around mm-hmm. town that day. Mm-hmm. Yes, possibly. Or they weren't yet in town. We don't know.
0: Yeah,
1: we'll talk about that. But um, so June 9th, it was the Children's Day celebration and Lena and Ina, they lived outside of town. They lived about a mile and a half from the Moore home, but they were going to come into town to then attend church and the Children's Day celebration with the Moore family because they were friends with Catherine. They had uh, this entry I read. They had these white dresses that their mom like wrapped up really nicely for them that they could carry into town, which just even thinking about that, I'm like, you have these two little girls. I think they were, I can't remember their ages. I should have written that down. They may be like eight and 11, but they just like walk a mile and a half into town. It's like, <laughs> y'all walk yeah. out of
0: you. I guess so. It's just yeah. so,
1: such a different world, but They, you know, they took their white dresses and they walked into town. They stopped first at the Moore house to drop off their dresses and um, they went with the Moors to church. So they went to church and then back to their grandma's house to spend some time with her before they would have to go back to the church for a rehearsal for this program.
0: My goodness.
1: Yes. Um, The Moore family had their usual Sunday routine they would go, after church, they would go visit Joe's father. So he lived a little bit outside of town, and he had suffered a stroke years before, so he was bedridden, but they made a point to go visit him on Sundays, and then usually once a month, they would go visit Sarah's family outside of town. So they would, like, hook up the carriage and the horses and they'd go visit family. And that night, When the Moore family returned, Lena and Ina came back over to the house and they had hatched this little plan, which made me smile and I thought was kind of adorable because I remember doing stuff like this when I was little. Um, So the original plan was that they would go to this children's day thing and then they would go back to their grandma's and spend the night there. But they didn't want to go to their grandma's. They wanted an overnight with Catherine.
0: Yeah, they wanted to have sleepover with their best friend.
1: So they tell Joe and Sarah, you know, we don't really want to walk at night to our grandma's house. We will feel a lot better if we can just come home with you all. And so Joe and Sarah are like, okay, like, yeah, you know, we just need to check with your family. So they rang their family. They got the okay. And so, like, it was set. Like, the overnight was set, which I just think is adorable because I did that so many times (laughs) growing up. (laughs) Where it's like I'd be hanging out with friends and be like, we want to have an overnight how can we convince our parents to do it? When (laughs) most of the time it was like, the parents were like, yeah, sure. We don't care. (laughs) It gets you out of our hair.
0: Or it's like, I would ask her something like that. I'm like, mom, can Emily spend the night tonight? And like Emily's standing right there. So my mom is like, I have to say yes, yes or I'm going to disappoint these children. (laughs) Yes.
1: Yes. (laughs) It was so exciting to go spend the night at your friend's house. I know. Oh, or have gosh. someone spend that night at your house.
0: Every weekend, when I was probably late elementary school and middle school, every single weekend, either I was at somebody else's house or somebody was at my house.
1: Or during the summer. It was like every night. It's yeah. like you just major rounds of like, who am I <laughs> staying with tonight? Or who's coming over <laughs> to my house? It's really cute what these stillinger girls did. It's also sad because of yeah, what happens you know to what them. Happens. But at the time, like it was just kind of adorable like let's just let's get this plan to stay here we don't want to stay with grandma we want to stay with the, <laughs> the moors so the moors and stillingers went to the children's day celebration so there would be things like bible verse recitation the kids would sing songs and just kind of show off what they learned during bible school the program ended about nine thirty p.m and the moors and the stillinger sisters walked home where it was said everyone had milk and cookies, and then they headed off to bed for the night. It sounds so wholesome. It really is. It's just, you know, walking home at night, milk and cookies, bedtime, different time. But obviously not, you know, things still happen, even in very wholesome times. The night... Seemed pretty typical for Veliska, but it was a dark one because there had been a dispute with the electric company and the residents of Veliska about the price of electric, I guess. there, And so the electric company was kind of like, okay, screw you all. We're turning off the lights at night. So you Something's all never have changed. no lights. So that night there were no street lights. So it would have been pretty dark as the family was walking home. Oh yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Did they have lights in their houses? Do you know?
1: Um, I'm not sure. I do know the family cause we'll talk about this. This is something that comes up. Um, they had lamps, like oil lamps. Yeah. I don't really know if they had electricity. Yeah. I don't, I don't think they had plumbing. I believe there was an outhouse. Not sure if they had electric. If Okay.
0: Yeah. Cause I know sometimes if they live like too far out, then they don't have electric yet. So
1: yeah, I, I don't just know. wondering. I mean, I don't, I mean, I know what it looks like now. I'm not sure how remote it was in 1912. Um, I know that there were houses on either side of them and none behind them. So they did have neighbors. They weren't like super out in the country. In town, Velisca's day marshal, Henry Hank Horton, who will come up later, he turned over duties to night marshal Henry Mike Overman. Everyone seemed Henry. So okay. Horton is day, Overman is night, and this was around the time that the church service was ending. So again, like small town, you have day marshals and night marshals. Just we have day Henry and night Henry. Day Henry, night Henry. The two men were walking together across the city square park, and they saw a stranger walking toward them. So Horton greeted him. The stranger didn't respond and kept walking. Rude. Like I said, strangers are not weird. in Veliska, like you're, you see them all the time, but it bothered Overman, who was the night watchman, that mm-hmm. the stranger didn't respond to him. And He kind of made a comment to Hank, like, I at least make them respond, and I like, shine my light in their face, and I make them say something to me. So he was kind of bothered by it. <laughs> Everyone's rude. Jeez. <laughs> Overman took over his nightly duties. He checked um, front doors of the local shops to make sure everything was locked up. He would go back in the alleyways to make sure everything was good, and then check the back doors of the shops. He stopped in at a local restaurant at the Home Depot.
0: Okay, as you're telling this story... I have a mental image playing like a movie <laughs> in my head. And it's like this guy's going around in a small town checking locks and he's going through the alley and then he comes out and then there's a Home Depot on the corner. <laughs> it's so, like lit up, right? Yes.
1: Bright, a big orange,
0: orange Home Depot. <laughs> <laughs> in this little nineteen hundreds town. <laughs>
1: okay not a Home Depot he was not at a with a local restaurant apparently at the Home Depot
0: it's inside the Home Depot like we have McDonald's inside of Walmart oh
1: god okay let me I'm leaving all that in because that's hilarious (laughs) okay no it was not Home Depot it was a local restaurant at a train depot The train depot (laughs)
0: That's okay, makes totally more sense. Different,
1: totally different, totally different thing. There were two men in their mid 30s who had come into town that night and they were looking for a bed. So, overman put them up in the jail. He put them in cells for the night. Didn't lock the cells, but was like, "Hey, we have open <laughs> cells. We have beds." Well, at least they have so a roof over their heads. They have a roof over their head. They have beds. So, he kind of he he left them in the jail and, you know, have have a good night, whatever. He did say that he went back the next morning about 5 a.m. to check on them and they were gone. Okay. Kind of something to remember. Mm -hmm. A girl named Xenia DeLay was the night operator at the Mutual Telephone System, so the telephone company. She worked the 6 p.m. to 7 a.m. shift and normally the only calls that would come in during this time were emergency calls, if any. So there was a cot set up in the office and then so Xenia would kind of nap on the cot until a call came in, if a call came in. At some point during the night, Xenia woke up to hearing footsteps on the outside stairs of the office. She said it was like someone trying to to like climb quietly but they were stepping on really creaky parts of the stairs oh weird yeah um and so there must have been like there must have been the steps leading into the main office area and then she had a closed door office off of that because she said she heard someone come into the main office area heard the footsteps come toward her door which was locked and she said she saw the doorknob turning like someone trying to turn it Mm
0: -mm. no eventually
1: it stopped she heard the person leave and she ran to the window to look out and didn't see anybody so that's odd like there's possible an explanation to it but weird that's just night henry odd but you would think he would you know hey maybe he was just
0: coming to see how she was doing or maybe he thought she could have been asleep and didn't want to wake her up or I don't
1: know. It's true. It could have it could have been that. Um just kind of check in to make sure that Good for her though for keeping locked.
0: the door locked when she's alone in there at night.
1: Smart girl. Ahead of her time. It seemed like a pretty typical night. And those are possibly odd things, but no one really thought that much about it at the time. But by the next morning, everything changed in Velisca, and what happened in the Moore house was completely horrifying. Just awful what happened and changed the town as they knew it. The next morning, June 10th, around 7 a.m., the Moore's neighbor, Mary Peckham, noticed something odd over at the Moore home. She noticed it was a little too quiet and shut up. And she said normally Joe would be leaving for work and Sarah would be outside doing the normal family chores. They had yeah. chickens. They had horses. So they, you know. They're going to let you, it's a farm and you, that's like first thing you do in the morning as you get your animals fed, but there was nothing going on. And it was enough to make Mary Peckham start to worry. So she walked over to the Moore home, knocked on the door, but no one answered. She tried the doorknob and the door was locked, which made her believe that no one had come out yet in the morning. Cause it would be typical that maybe the house would be locked up at night, but then it's going to be unlocked during the yeah. day. So Mary let the chickens out and she rang Ross Moore, who was Joe's brother. She let him know that she was a little concerned. So Ross Moore first called a man named Ed Selly. He worked for Joe in his farm shop and Ross asked Ed, you know, has Joe been in this morning? Do you know where he is? And Ed says, no, I haven't seen him. And I, I haven't heard from him. I don't know where he is. So Ross comes over to his brother's house to kind of look around himself on the outside but he can't see much because all the curtains are drawn over the windows in the house ross has an extra key that he uses to unlock the door and he tells mary to stay outside while he goes in ross entered into a very quiet house and first opened a door on the first floor it was a sewing room but also had a bed in it and there he saw two blood-covered bodies on Mm. the bed Ross immediately turns around and leaves the house and Good tells Mary him. Peckham. Get to, out, get out. Right. He gets out and um, he tells Mary Peckham, call Marshall Hank Horton, which is. yeah. Call Day Henry. Call Day Henry. That's day. That's what we'll refer to him as Day Henry. Call Day Henry. <laughs>
0: day Henry and Night Henry.
1: Okay. So Day Henry gets to the house a little bit before eight o'clock and enters himself into the Moore home. He first goes to that first floor bedroom where Ross had entered. He sees two girls in that room. He then goes upstairs to two other bedrooms and found six other victims lying in equally blood-soaked beds. The Moore family God. and the Stillinger sisters were all dead, but at the time nobody knew that it was Lena and Ina Stillinger. No one knew that they were there, so they oh, just knew that there they were, were supposed eight to go to victims. grandma's.
0: Yeah.
1: Day Henry walks out of the house and locks the door behind him and he tells Ross there's somebody dead in every bed. And I can't imagine being Ross and hearing that. Like, that's his brother's family. It's his brother. Yeah.
0: I can't imagine just waking up to that kind of news anyway. Because nowadays people have police scanners and you Mm -hmm. hear the sirens going down the street. And there's, like, people on Facebook Live or something. Like, you can tell if something's happening, when it's happening. Right. But you just wake up to, the like... All
1: this well and this is not something this town is used to like yeah crime shocking. like this doesn't happen there you know it's petty theft and little disagreements
0: this is why they this. leave their jail cells unlocked exactly <laughs> nobody That's, in there yeah
1: exactly god it reminds me of mayberry with the andy griffith show <laughs> with the home depot with home depot we gotta have the home depot Day Henry realizes more than likely he's in over his head and he needs to go get help. So he for needs him. to go get a Dr. Clark Cooper, who has an office downtown. The Moore family minister, Reverend Ewing, he comes over and he's the one to tell them Lena and Ina Stillinger had stayed overnight at the Moore house. So he oh, knew about that. So he's able to good. be like, you know, they were supposed to be there. On his way into town, Day Henry runs into Night, henry overman and tells him that joe moore was killed and he's going to get a doctor so overman then he goes over to the moore home to see what he can do when hank horton arrives at the moore residence with dr cooper um horton cooper and then a dr hugh and reverend hewing all go into the house to find the eight victims all in their beds the um blood-covered bedding is all stiff And the majority of the blood is at the head of the victims and on the pillow, indicating that it was head trauma. Mm -hmm. They also found that all of the curtains and blinds were drawn over the windows. And then I'm guessing this is when they determined that the two girls in the downstairs bedroom are Lena and Ina, Mm -hmm. because that reverend is in there with them. A crowd starts to gather at the home of neighbors and townspeople because word is traveling that something is going on at the Moore home, small town, this like word travels fast. So yeah, people start to gather. Um, they want to see what's going on. And there, like pretty quickly. There's at least a hundred people that are there, which is overwhelming to Mike Overman, the night watchman, um, Dr. Cooper. He's yelling at Overman, like keep the crowd back because people are trying to like push past him and get into the house. And Cooper oh, apparently no, says not this again. Oh yeah. It's, gets bad. Cooper apparently says, boys, my God, don't come in here. So, you know, these guys are shocked too. You know, the doctors and Hank Horton, you know, they didn't expect this. They wake up to see this. So everyone's just kind of in shock. Word is is traveling. Telephone operators are hearing about it. Ed Selly, who works with Joe, he finds another doctor, Dr. Williams. He runs into him on the street and he's like, go over to the Moore home. So now there's like five doctors or something, four or five. And has to call John Deere because he doesn't know what to do with the shop. He's like, what do I do? Joe Moore's dead. He's murdered. This Dr. Williams, he goes to the house, but he is the one to finally be able to observe the bodies that are lying in their beds and kind of try and determine what happened to right. them. Okay. So he first goes upstairs to Joe and Sarah And he wants to check for rigor mortis. Um, He kind of, like, lifts them up from where they're laying and lets them fall back down. And he estimates that based on rigor and then the blood that they've been dead for about five to six hours. Okay. Um, The bodies of Joe and Sarah are both laying on their backs. And Sarah's head is kind of leaning a little bit toward Joe. He then examined the Moore children, Catherine, Paul, Herman, and Boyd, to determine the same thing. Um, Not going to go into wounds for them. Mm -hmm. Um, They are obviously deceased. And there is no evidence that anybody woke up during the attack. Any of them woke up during the attack. Mm -hmm. In the downstairs bedroom were Lena and Ina. Ina was on the west side of the bed. Lena was the only one that showed evidence that she possibly woke up during the attack. She was on the east side of the bed. She was about a third of the way down the bed with wounds, like, above her shoulders. Okay. She's lying almost sideways. Um, It's confusing. We don't have pictures. We don't have crime scene photos. No Mm -hmm. one knows what happened to those. They were taken, but no one knows where they are. I don't know if she's, like... Laying across the bed, or if she's like turned over on her side, I but she was in a way that they thought she probably woke up, she was yeah. in like an odd position.
0: Okay, um,
1: there's blood on her pillow, but her head is toward the bottom of the pillow, so almost like she was moved down. She has one arm that's raised up. This part is gonna it's not gonna be graphic, but it's gonna be difficult to hear. But I need to talk about it because it's gonna come up. Her nightgown is pulled up, and she didn't have any underwear on. Horton Hank Horton finds the underwear under the bed he also finds blood on the inside of her leg which makes him think that someone like grabbed her and pulled her and pulled her and that's why her body is the way it is um it was thought at first that she had defensive wounds on her arms but it apparently turned out just to be blood from yeah. the attack um so, obviously, when looking at Lena, their immediate thought is the possibility of a sexual assault and a mm-hmm. sexually motivated crime. However, there was no evidence of sexual assault on Lena That's so good. she was examined so if you're going to find anything happy about it, it's that she was not sexually assaulted um, okay. I will talk about I will talk about some possible thoughts I had on her positioning and why maybe her nightgown was up. Why even maybe her underwear was off? I don't know.
0: But Okay. When you talk about that, I have a question, maybe okay. or not really you a can- question, just a observation, I guess.
1: Okay. Do you want to say it now or do you wanna wait?
0: Well, I was just wondering, since everybody in the house died,
1: mm-hmm.
0: he would either have to try to kill her first or last. It we'll seems go like into if, the he, order. if sexual assault was a motive, then he would kill everybody and try to like have his sexual assault victim be last.
1: They so nobody they would interrupt think They him. will go into what they how they think it all happened and okay, who good. went first, um, which I will talk about. Um, so hold that thought. The axe and suspected murder weapon was found in the Stillinger bedroom. It looked like it had been wiped clean or attempted to be wiped clean, but there was still some blood and hair on it, on the blade. Uh I don't know why the killer tried to wipe it clean. It's it's odd. I don't know. The axe that was determined belonged to Joe Moore and had been out in his coal shed. So it had been taken from the shed and used to kill the family. So I'm going to talk about how they believe the crimes happened. Um, This is taken from eyewitness accounts from some of those first people to enter into the house, some of those doctors, King Corton, um, because unfortunately, people got into the house, neighbors, townspeople. They were basically running around room to room as people are trying to examine the bodies. They were in the middle of a crime scene. They were taking things from the house. Oh, God. Up to 100 people touched the axe, they believe. So- contaminated but well, they
0: just show and tell pass it around or something yeah, i hey, don't everybody, understand look at this her, her, her. My i don't God. understand
1: i don't like why I, would you want
0: to see something like that like why is that i don't know.
1: i i thought about that and i'm like because you hear about that i thought about pearl Bryan again because they have like people selling like merchandise outside of her crime scene and i just <sighs> i don't get it it seems like something people would do today because we're a-holes today and we do stuff like that (laughs) like we're such a messed up society today i'm like back in the 1900s you guys seem so prim and proper and like respectful what are you doing you're like taking parts of crime scenes and parts like things off of people's bodies i don't get it but i guess now like i guess are always garbage i guess now because we realize what forensics does now like if Mm -hmm. i walk into a crime scene like (laughs) I'm I mean, evidence behind. Yeah, um, then maybe they didn't realize. Like we know the implications of it. We know the implications of contaminating a crime scene. Maybe back then they didn't, and it was just you didn't have the twenty-four hour news cycle to give you details. You didn't have YouTube channels, podcasts. You didn't have those things. You have Facebook, social media. So the only way you're going to learn about anything is if you're like. Let's go into the crime scene. like. But I don't reason. need to
0: go in and see like eight dead people and like no, six dead children and all this like bludgeoned to death. I'm no like, one that's needs just, to do that. I trust you if you tell me that that's what happened in there. I trust you. But
1: also, people used to have picnics at hangings of black men and black oh, people. they used to have picnics at Civil War battles and I stuff. It's like, like, let's get
0: on top of the hill and watch these people kill each other.
1: What? <laughs> I'm glad that we've moved away from that. But it seems like something that would happen today, to be honest, with how we are. So how they think the crimes happened based on what they observed when they first entered into the house. They believe that the killers started in the parents' room, which makes sense because you're going to take out the, the adults. adults first. Um, neither victim appeared to have woken up and were found obviously still in bed, likely dying pretty quickly after the attack. There were allegedly blade marks on the ceiling of the bedroom, which was not your typical ceiling. It kind of slopes down.
0: Oh, yeah. Okay. Um,
1: so I don't exactly know what part of that slope those marks were. I don't know if they were in the lower part or if they were like way up into the top. Yeah. The majority of what I've read said that Joe was the only one to be hit with the blade end of the axe. I was oh, going to say, if yes. there's
0: blade marks in the ceiling, that means he used the blunt end.
1: Yes. Um Joe had wounds from the blade and also the blunt end. The rest of the family, rest of the victims were only hit with the blunt end of the axe. I do have a theory why. I will talk about that. Cuz people have theories about why why Joe had the blade wounds as well as the blunt wounds. After killing Joe and Sarah, they believe the killer went to the bedroom where the more children slept. The Moore children were all killed in their beds with the blunt end of the axe. None appear to have woken up, just like their parents. The killer, they believed then returned to Joe and Sarah's room and continued to inf- inflict wounds on Joe Why? and Sarah. Oh, my God. Joe Moore received more blows from the axe than anyone else. Um, according to people at the scene, he was unrecognizable with the extent of damage to his face. Um, there was so much blood that it had pulled in a shoe that was sitting next to the bed. And at some point it had been overturned. So the blood had spilled out of it. Somebody
0: has like rage against Joe.
1: Well, I'll go kind of what I think. I I think that's a possibility, but But I also think there's other explanations as well. They believe then after the second attack on the family, the killer moved downstairs and killed Lena and Ina last with the blunt end of the axe and then left the weapon in their room.
0: Do they think that the killer knew that the two girls were in the bedroom or was he maybe just checking on his way out? And it's like, oh, crap, there's these two girls spinning. I got to kill them, too.
1: That's my question. We don't we don't know. It could have been he could have known they were there. He could have not known. Maybe he heard them if Lena started to wake it seems like it was to a
0: last-minute decision to, for the girls to spend the night. So. Right.
1: It could have just been, like, peeking into the room as he walked out and realizing there were two other girls in there. So we don't know. We don't know if okay. he knew or if they were just unfortunately there. I mean, unfortunately that all of them were there. Mm-hmm. But... Montgomery County Coroner Lindquist and Undertaker J.L. Smith both toured the house, and there were some really odd things that were found. Every victim's face was covered with a cloth or with (gasps) bedclothes. Yes. So you didn't know that, did you?
0: No, I didn't. (laughs) Is this something that the killer did or something that the, like the priest the killer done did, or somebody after the killer
1: did whoa because they they said it was stiff like it was like stuck to like it had oh, dried the blood had dried mm-hmm. oh every single face was covered every mirror or glass surface in the house was covered by some kind of cloth or clothing it was hung over it yes Every single window had the curtains pulled. And the two windows that didn't have curtains, they found a skirt that had been ripped in half and then pinned over those windows. Yes. Yeah, see, I'm so excited. Somebody you took don't know some this time. Mm-hmm. Somebody took some time in that house. This but had to have been done after. Covering mirrors is an old superstition. Yes, So people believed that when people died, you cover the mirrors so their souls don't get stuck after death and they can move on. Were they covered because someone didn't want their spirits to be trapped? Or did the killer not want to see himself as he was committing these acts, but everything was covered. So we don't know. We don't know what it was. This is another weird one. There was a slab of bacon wrapped in either a towel or a cheesecloth left on the floor in the Stillinger's bedroom. Bacon? Bacon. Believed to have been cut from another slab that was found in the icebox. Bacon, like obviously, bacon then was like, not like now, like we buy like it packaged, some hickory it's smoke sliced, like like <laughs> like a chunk of well, bacon. yeah, 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 a chunk of it was found just sitting on the floor in the bedroom, bacon, huh, I'm so excited, you don't know this stuff, and so I'm there's just like bacon in the you. okay, just chilling, yes, with the rest of it in the icebox. hmm, don't know, was the killer hungry, was he planning to take it with him and forgot about it or got rushed I also read in a couple places that there was a bowl of bloody water that was found that they believe the killer used to wash up but then I also read that it was just dirty water not bloody but there was water that was found
0: well a lot of places back then didn't they used to have like a pitcher and bowl of water that people could have in bedrooms just to wash up yeah
1: this was in the kitchen I believe okay um the lamps were found in weird places and i mentioned these lamps before like the oil lamps with the wick and then the chimney that the glass chimney that goes over them there was one at the top of the steps kind of on the floor that um hank horton had to move when they walked up just kind of like sitting at the top of the steps but then there was one at the foot of joe and sarah's bed and then one at the foot of the stillinger bed both had their wicks bent down and both chimneys were removed and put underneath the dressers in the rooms. What? Yes. Weird. It's weird. Why? Like why? That's what, you know, if there were just lamps that were found, I wouldn't think anything of it, but it's like very specific. The wicks bent, the chimneys removed sitting at the bottom of the bed. It's, it's just odd. Like it's Uh very eerie. Like this is all very eerie. Stuff that doesn't make sense and doesn't seem to connect. Okay. Why would somebody do that? So there was also a pocket watch of Joe's that was found left in the stillinger bedroom. So it could either be maybe the killer meant to take that and just forgot, he forgot. it. Or he'd been keeping track of time possibly if he needs to make sure he gets out of the house before it gets light outside. Um doesn't seem like it's a robbery. Like that was left. There was some money that was left. Sarah still had her wedding ring on. So mm-hmm. it doesn't seem like that was going to get taken. So I think it was to keep track of time. That was kind of my first thought. Okay. Obviously like they're probably not going to have clocks everywhere. Yeah. Um but the, you know, he's I say he because more than likely it's a he. Um he's going to want to make sure he gets out of the house before it gets light outside. There was also no blood on any of the doorknobs, and the only blood leaning away from the beds was one drop that was found, and it was no bigger than the end of a finger. There were no blood trails left anywhere. Like
0: outside nowhere? What, do nowhere. you take his shoes off or something, or like Nothing. change clothes, or... There
1: was no blood left. There was the blood <gasps> in the bedrooms, but and there was blood on like the walls around the bed from the murders, but... Nothing leading, like nothing in the hallways, nothing leading from each bedroom, nothing. Huh. I don't know how that makes sense unless he cleaned it up. He
0: must have cleaned it up. I wonder if he changed clothes, like put everything in a trash bag and just took it with him. That's going to leave a mess on you. Those murders are going to be bloody.
1: They're going to be bloody. I mean, you had a shoe that was filled with blood that was just like sitting beside the bed. So he's going to be covered in blood. How do you not leave blood evidence somewhere i think he changed clothes and yeah, plus you're not then, gonna be like,
0: walking outside like covered in blood either people right. are gonna suspect you for things so right i think he changed clothes i think I or think he left i don't
1: know or he left when it was still dark we don't we don't know but
0: still he would leave blood spatter somewhere he had to leave the house and surely mm-hmm. he'd be dripping with blood
1: right seems like you could like follow the trail and find out where this person went but there wasn't blood left There were also axe marks on the ceiling in the cylinder room, and there was some drywall dust laying on the bed. So he also hit the ceiling that way. Damn. They believe the killer left through the front door, taking the house keys with him and locking the door as he left because the door was locked. Yeah. Weird. Just like chilling. Like, all right, time to go. Walk outside, lock the door and leave. Like, and to go out the front door. Mm hmm you have a thought i can tell well
0: i was gonna say he could have changed clothes or this this is gonna sound really kind of off the wall he could have undressed got like totally naked killed everybody then washed up and then put his clothes back on
1: Mm -hmm. that's the theory with lizzie Borden.
0: yeah because i mean he's probably gonna know he's gonna get his clothes bloody and dirty and stuff you could wash your skin off pretty easy
1: yeah but then wouldn't there have been wouldn't you have found any like bloody footprints or something Yeah, it seems like you would. Unless he wore his shoes.
0: Well, if they would have let the hundred people not go in the house, they probably would have found some footprints.
1: True. So one thing that I heard, I always thought was fact, like everything I read, listened to for this was that, um, but I'm not sure if it's true or not now, because then I saw something that disputed it. But. It was that investigators went up to the attic and found used cigarette butts up there, and they believed that the killer had gotten into the house while the family was gone and waited in the attic for them to go to bed to then kill them. But then I also heard somewhere that that didn't happen. So hmm. okay, I, I don't know. Um, there was also in the Smithsonian article, I believe, Um, was that they believe someone, they had found evidence in the barn that somebody had like, there were like impressions in the hay looking like somebody maybe maybe sat there or slept or waited there for a period of time. And that there was kind of a hole in the barn where you could have watched the house from a distance. So I don't know which one is true. I Mm -hmm. always thought that the attic thing was fact and it just adds this whole other level of creepy to it of thinking like somebody waiting in the attic, For them to go to bed. Um, So I don't know. Maybe maybe over time it was a rumor that started and that it was the barn thing. Maybe. I don't know. I'm not too sure. So I wanted to kind of throw both of those out there that I've heard both of those and I've heard neither of those. That I've read things where those aren't even mentioned.
0: Yeah. He had to have gotten inside the house somehow. If he used Joe's keys to leave. Okay, that makes sense. But how did he get in to begin with? Did they have signs of break-ins? or
1: They couldn't figure out how he got in. They thought it was possible he would have gone through the kitchen door. It would have been likely left unlocked when the family was at church. Yeah, Probably most houses back then didn't lock their houses. Yeah, There was an empty lot behind the Moore home. And then there were two houses on either side. So they believe that the killer would have been, especially if they got there at night, They would have been pretty much covered by the dark and not seen if they went in through the backyard and then back in through the kitchen door, which was thanks electric company. Yeah, seriously, they turned the lights back on after that. Oops. Yeah, it takes people (laughs) to be murdered for things to happen. (laughs) But also, the axe was in the backyard, so logically, it would have made sense for the killer to grab the ax and then go in the back door and not walk all the way around to the front.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: And also we don't know what time the killer went in. If it was still possibly light ish out, um, you're not going to risk coming to the front of the house. You're going to just slip in the back. So Uh they did check the windows. They said all but two were locked, but the two that were left unlocked had things in, one had things in front of them. I think like a table and a sewing machine. They said it would have been hard for someone to climb in there. The other one had unbroken cobwebs on it. So no one had climbed through there. So they don't know for sure, but they think it was possibly through the kitchen door. The undertaker, Smith, he is told at this point, like after they walk the house, kind of come up with what happened, he is told to take charge of the bodies, but they are, aren't to be removed yet. So unfortunately, the bodies would lay there all day until almost midnight before they were finally released. So there's some things I do want to talk about with that, some thoughts I had. And I want to talk about the axe wounds on Joe. And that a lot of people think because of the damage done to him that he was targeted out of anger, which I think is possible, that he received the most damage out of everybody. And he was also someone who received the only mark or the only wound from the blade of the axe. Yeah. What do you think? Because I have some theories, but I want to hear what you think.
0: I don't know. It seems like it's personal for it to be so brutal. And if they think that, I don't know how they think that he killed Joe and Sarah first, then went back and killed the children, and then went back for some more. If there was no footprints, how, I don't know how they know that. But it seems I think, like it's
1: very personal. So I believe that some of the wounds they determined occurred uh, post-mortem. So obviously, oh, okay, like, okay. So those wounds are obviously going to be different because your heart has stopped beating at that point and there's not blood flowing. So you're going to be able to tell the wounds that happen afterwards. So they were able to determine that it came back at some point. I don't really know how they determined that it was the parents, the more children, and the Stillingers, and not... Or the parents, the more children, the parents, the Stillingers, and not parents, Stillingers, parents, more children. So does does Frank... Uh, Joe's
0: old boss have an alibi for where he was at night? Like, could his family
1: verify he was home? We'll talk about the suspects because he comes <laughs> okay, up okay. and it's crazy. So I, I do think it can be targeted. I also think there's explanation as to why it's not um, and why they maybe came back. I think it makes sense that the adults are going to be targeted first because yeah. they're going to be more likely to wake up. If something's happening in their home and it makes sense to take out the male first out of a husband and wife, not trying to be sexist. It just, he's
0: going to be the stronger one. You're going to go for the stronger one. Fight you
1: more, better, more, better. He'll fight you more, better. (laughs) You try. I try. I have a theory that's going to get a little graphic, but. I don't mean to be, but it's something that popped into my head. Why Joe had a wound from the blade, but then the blunt end was primarily used on everybody else. (sighs) This is going to get maybe yucky, but I have to say it. Um, If somebody would have been hit with the blade, there's going to be resistance pulling it out. Does that make sense? Like. Yeah. There's more chance the blade is going to get stuck. Have and you ever you, cut like wood before? Like when you're before? chopping wood, yeah, yeah. You have to. If you haven't chopped wood before, sometimes you use a wedge. <laughs> you, sometimes you hit it, and, and it goes it halfway stuck. down, and it gets stuck. And even when you like lift <gasps> the axe back up, it's stuck. Okay. So you have to bang it to get it through. I know what you're saying now. So, if the person came in, the killer came in with the plan all along that he's going to kill the family with the bl- with the blade of the axe. It got stuck. He hits Joe first and yep. then realizes this isn't working mm-hmm. and adjusted and then flips the axe over and and uses the blunt end instead. Good observation. Thank you. Thanks. Okay. I went into the wrong line of work. <laughs> um, <laughs> so, that was just kind of my theory because I, I don't think he had a ton of blade marks on him. Yeah. Um, that was my theory that it was done just kind of as a, like, this isn't working. This is going to take too long. So yep. mm-hmm. I need to adjust what I'm going to do. And people might wake
0: up too. And if people you have might to wake
1: up, you have a husband and wife sitting next to each other. And I have a theory about that too, because people say, how did nobody wake up? Especially Sarah, you know, she's in bed next to him. Mm-hmm. And I think it's because people think of this murder as the killer comes at Joe and hits him and then hits him and hits him and hits him and hits him and kills no, him. No, he like and knocks out Joe then knocks out Sarah. Exactly. And then goes back to Joe. It's a hit to Joe. It's a hit to Sarah. It happens fast. Neither of them have a chance to wake up. Neither of them have a chance to know what's happening. And so you have this that they'd never move because they are immediately incapacitated if not killed right off the bat. Yeah. So I think that's why. Um and also with the the children, I do think two of the boys shared a bed. Um Catherine had her own bed and I believe the youngest, the 5-year-old had a bed as well. Or like a little cot or a uh, crib. So you know, I'm not sure. Oh god. If they woke up, um I don't know. I don't want to think about it. It's, but it it seems that Lena was the only one who woke up. You know, her sister did not. Her sister didn't show any evidence of it. So, um, and I also have a theory about why the killer would go back to the room. That is not a targeted attack on Joe, and that is because I to get the watch. But then, why hit him just to get the watch? Like that's true. So it could be targeted, or I thought also, you know, this person is clearly not stable, and. What if, you know, he's covering mirrors, he's doing weird things with the lamp, he's got bacon laying around, like he's doing weird things, like something isn't right. Mm -hmm. And I just think of somebody who's carrying out these murders. Maybe something in his mind when he's in the children's room is like, Joe's not dead. Like, they're not dead. I need to go back. I need to go back and make sure that they're dead, like almost an obsessive, like not accepting that they're gone. So he goes back and almost like. Overkill just to make sure maybe there's a sound that happens, you know, as you're yeah. dying, there are sounds that happen and he mistakes that as being somebody still alive. So he goes back and does it. So we don't necessarily think it means that it was directed specifically at Joe. It could just be the killer is out of his mind and doing weird things. I don't obviously know it for sure. But it's just kind of another idea that I had doesn't necessarily mean he was targeted. Do you have any thoughts you would like to share? This is nuts. Am I teaching you something?
0: <laughs> yeah, I didn't know about all the weird stuff going on.
1: Mm-hmm. I yes, know it's...
0: a theory. Well, you'll talk about theories and mm-hmm. suspects and stuff, and I'll tell you the one that I'm familiar with. But okay.
1: the sheriff arrives midday to secure the scene. I don't know why it took him so long. I don't know if he's like not in town. If he's like county sheriff and he's somewhere. Yeah, he might be. Yeah, outside of Villisca. But I was kind of like, um he probably should have got there sooner like you should at least have like a police barricade or something to stop people from coming yeah um, for real because the crowd's huge and poor hank horton day hank um he's actually <laughs> a carpenter by trade he had no formal police training he was oh my a gosh, so like
0: constables
1: yeah so but he was a bigger guy so people yeah. thought you know he'd be able to handle rowdy people but he's now trying to handle a a crowd of like 100 people so i feel really bad for him and he's probably in shock as well about what he has seen
0: gosh i bet all of them are like the doctors and the priest and everybody
1: and the crime scene got so messed up they things were moved like i said before things were taken there were obviously other fingerprints that were left so Obviously, fingerprinting then is different than it is now. Mm -hmm. We lift fingerprints now. You can lift fingerprints off of objects. They would, if they found a fingerprint, they would take a picture and then analyze it. So it's kind of the best they could do at the time. Eh, They do what they can. Not the best. But then you've got 100 people around. You've got several of those coming in, leaving their fingerprints. You're wiping away evidence. And also, if you're the killer and you're still in town... I'd be like, all right, I'm going into the scene and I'm gonna touch stuff. So then if it comes up, I could be like, well, I walked in, Mm -hmm. you know, with everybody else and I touched a bunch of stuff. So secure your crime scene and don't go into crime scenes. For (laughs) real, stay away from it. Behind the coroner had a really hard time doing anything because he said there were people running from room to room as he's trying to like do what he needs to do with the body. The town is going insane. Everyone thinks that the murders were committed by like a drifter, crazed drifter. You live yeah. by train tracks. So I think somebody came in on the train and did this and they were sure we're going to find this person covered in blood, hiding in like a barn or a basement or something. We're going to find Not him. If he
0: changed clothes like I, I think clothes. he did. But they
1: they really thought we're going to find him. Like he's somewhere around here. A lot I like of... the
0: way to, I'm sorry to interrupt. No, go for it. I mean, a lot of times when you have murders that are this bad in really small towns and areas, it's always somebody else that did it. It's always a drifter on a train tracks. They never think that it could be one of us. Like somebody mm-hmm. here could be a murderer. So they always go to it's not one of us. It's somebody else. Is like their very first.
1: This town instinct, seemed to go both ways. They yeah. some because they thought it was a drifter, but then the town also formed their own little posse's to try and like hunt down who it was. And, like, random people were accused. Like, random I people bet. in town were accused. And, p- like, there were a lot of people that were brought in that were able to give alibis and be cleared. But it seemed it didn't seem like everyone was turning on everybody. But you might be like, well, so-and-so, I saw the him walking at night.
0: Yeah, people and are so getting in. the side
1: eye a lot. Right, right. And I bet it, Frank it, is know? scared right now. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but this just comes from... A town that's just not prepared to handle yeah. this at all. Um, and then when their searches turned up nothing, people were scared because they thought somebody did this and they got away. And we don't know who it is. So, you know, people bought dogs. Like you couldn't buy a dog after today. People bought oh, wow. watchdogs, people bought locks for their houses, people kept, you know, watch over their house with a gun and then their neighbor's house with a gun. So it Jeez. was
0: they Crazy. probably went to Home Depot and got some ring security Home depot. cameras and Depot.
1: Some wood to like put over their windows. Yeah, Home Depot won't have dogs, but they could bring their dogs to Home Depot once they you know when they went. <laughs>
0: to buy their <laughs> to buy their stuff. <laughs> to their buy their off. security systems.
1: <laughs> yes. Oh, I'm not gonna live that one down ever.
0: <laughs> that was so funny.
1: <laughs> well you see the word depot and you think Home Depot.
0: <laughs> What's the first thing that comes to your mind when you hear this word? Depot, home. I didn't even, I didn't even hesitate.
1: It was just like you went to the Home Depot. <laughs> oh, The county coroner, Dr. Lindquist, refused to release the bodies until he received authorization from county attorney, Mr. Ratliff, who was in Cedar Rapids at the time. So when Ratliff okay. finds out about the murders, hops on a train, and he gets there around 9 p.m. or a little after to then authorize the body to be released and moved. However, at the same time, there were bloodhounds that were brought in from Nebraska and that arrived in town to help with the search. And Coroner Lindquist, who, you know, needed to be there at the scene for this body release, decides to chase after the bloodhounds on this search, along with 2,000 other people. Oh, my God. Yes. So the coroner What are the off. bloodhounds
0: going to... There's like so many other people that's been in and out of this house. These dogs are going to be so confused.
1: Yeah, they're given the axe to smell. The axe has been handled by over Which everybody passed at around like
0: show and tell. So. And then
1: you have them running off, and then you have 2,000 people who are chasing them, who are in cars, who are on horseback, who are on foot. Oh my foot. God.
0: Are we playing like the Benny Hill music in the background of all this now?
1: It should be. I mean, in the coroner, the coroner has just decided to run off as well. Like you're not needed elsewhere, you know, with these dead bodies. Like maybe here. with like,
0: yeah, be with your murder victims. Be with
1: the victims.
0: Like if I was the coroner, I would go to the house, be with the bodies, and stay with the bodies. Like that's no. what I'm in charge of. Somebody else can handle the dogs.
1: You went on a bloodhound joyride.
0: That's so. not your um, not your job.
1: But okay, so I have to have just a little side note, a lighter thing, because the picture in my head is actually from a children's book that I loved growing up. It's my favorite children's book ever. (laughs) What are you about to do? It's a story. It's the book. If anyone knows this book, I hope my parents still have it. It's my favorite book ever. It's called Andrew Henry's Meadow. And it's about this little boy who is this inventor, and he builds all these things, and he invents all these things, and he ticks off his parents and his sisters, and they get mad at him. So he gets mad and he runs away. And finds this meadow and he built his own house, like this little cottage in this meadow. And then all these kids from town start to like find his meadow. And he starts building all these houses for these little kids based on what they like. Like there's a little girl who likes bunnies. So her house is underground with these little bunny tunnels. There's this kid who likes like airplanes. So he's got one like up in the trees. So and Andrew Henry helps build these. But then as the parents start realizing all the kids are gone, they're like, what's happening? And the dog is the one to alert them to be like, hey, follow me. And it's the part of the book where the dog's like sniffing the ground and running after the kids. And he has like all the parents in town behind him. So that's <laughs> what's in my mind. Okay. <laughs> okay. That's what's in my mind. It's not too bad. No, it's such a good, it's my favorite book. I looked it up on Amazon and I can get a copy for 96 bucks. Oh, my God. I think my parents still have it. I think I told them, please don't give this away because I love it. Kind of
0: rare-ass literature were you reading when you were little?
1: That and Lizzie Borden books? (laughs) Um, It was written in like the 50s. (laughs) So it's an old book. It was hand-me-downs. Like I had hand-me-downs probably (laughs) from my mom, which she read when she was a kid. So with the bloodhounds, the dogs ended up on the west fork of the Notaway River and where they stopped. They were brought back a second time, ended up at the same spot. And then the third time, I don't think anything happened. So they were returned to Nebraska. And nothing came of it, probably because they had too many people around them.
0: Yep. Dogs got confused.
1: On Tuesday, June 11th, a fingerprint expert and assistant warden at Leavenworth Penitentiary named M.W. McClowry arrived in Vallisca to look at the scene. But... You're going to laugh at this. I facepalmed when I read this. Oh, no. No one had much confidence in him from the beginning because as soon as he got off the train, he fell down drunk and had to sober up before anyone (laughs) would allow him at the crime scene. Oh, So you have a coroner coroner who runs off with dogs and Uh you have a drunk fingerprint expert coming in. So, so yeah, he had to sober up a little bit. They did let him at the crime scene um, once he was sober. And he was not able to find any usable fingerprints, but he did analyze the blood splatter and the axe marks on the ceiling and said, based on the marks, that he believed the killer was left-handed and had been using one hand to swing the axe over his head in a frenzy. Shit, one-handed, left-handed? Which is odd, because it seems very precise, and you're not going to have a ton of control with one hand, I would think. Like, you're going to have more of a control Hmm. if you have two hands, like a baseball bat.
0: If yeah, I try to swing a I baseball bat do. with one hand,
1: I'm not going to have much luck. But if I've got two hands on it, I'm going to be a little better at hitting the ball.
0: If I try to swing an axe with one hand, I'm going to rip myself in
1: half. And it's going to be heavy. Like, Yeah.
0: I mean, he. Pro- I wonder if he grabbed it like where he grabbed it, like kind of in the middle, toward the bottom, or up toward like the top more.
1: I mean, I think common sense would be like a little up from the bottom and – Like, a little down from the top.
0: See, if they knew exactly where he grabbed it from, judging by the holes in the ceiling, then they could probably guess about how tall he was or something. Or something about him.
1: Yeah, I don't know. Um, I'll talk about that with one of the suspects. On June 12th, the funerals were held for the Moores and the Sillinger sisters. There were so many people there that the National Guard had to line the streets um, as the horse-drawn carriages walked by with the hearses to keep order. because There were so many oh, people. Wow! Yeah. Um, the Moore family was buried in a family plot with one big headstone and then small individual headstones for each family member. Lena and Ina were buried side by side and shared a headstone oh are they in the
0: more plot too no are they like next to them okay they're
1: in a different plot because they i mean they're obviously probably with their family right that's what i figured john montgomery he was sarah's father he said the last time that he ever saw his daughter was june 2nd 10 days before the murders oh poor guy um joe and sarah had brought the four kids over in their wagon um to visit with him and John Montgomery said, quote, Joe and Sarah always seemed to be happy and cheerful when they were around, just as cheerful as any people could be. And oh. quote. Yeah.
0: And Sarah was my age, too.
1: Oh, gosh. Yeah. There was a coroner's inquest to try and figure out what happened. This was like right after the murders. 14 witnesses testified, including Mary Peckham, who gave her story, and Ed Selly. Who worked with Joe? Ed Selly was interviewed at this inquest and he was asked about possible enemies that Joe may have had. Ed named a man named Sam Moyer. This was Joe's brother in law. Moyer had allegedly said at one point, referring to Joe, that he was going to, quote, get him. They brought Moyer in for questioning on June 13th and he gave a solid alibi and was cleared as a suspect. Okay. Don't say you're going to get people. Like, be nice. What you say to people because you don't know when you're going to be in the middle of a murder investigation. And by the end of the inquest, there was really no other. Like, there wasn't any information that they gained from that.
0: I like the way your um, your reasoning for being nice to people is so you don't become the subject of a murder investigation. Yes,
1: <laughs> it's a good set of advice. <laughs> and just say
0: no to human sacrifice,
1: always. Just because the coroner's inquest didn't really give information does not mean there weren't suspects in the Velisca Axe murders. There were several of them. I'm going to talk about a few. The first is actually two people, Frank Jones and William Mansfield. These guys go together. William Mansfield was also referred to as William Blackie Mansfield. I don't know why. He's a white guy. I don't know where that came from, where that nickname came from. I'm just going to refer to him as William Mansfield and leave that part. Yeah, okay. I don't know (laughs) where his name (laughs) from. Like, I think maybe a journalist had done it. It came up with that nickname. I don't know. So I talked about Frank Jones at the beginning. He was the man that Joe had worked for and then left to start his own business and then created a lot of drama because he, he took the John Deere account which obviously upset frank jones Mm -hmm. but also it was rumored that joe had an affair with frank jones's daughter-in-law donna donna was married to albert jones who was frank's son Mm -hmm. donna was known to quote entertain men in her home when her husband was gone and was not really secret about it she would use the phone to set up these meetings and back then like you're basically tapped. Like, every phone is tapped because you have operators who are listening into your phone calls. Yeah, it's like a so, party line. Yeah. So, she would do this and it was said that Joe Moore was a visitor of Donuts. Now, I want to say...
0: It, uh, was there any telephone operator, I wonder, that could verify this? I don't it's know. like, yeah, I, I heard her... I heard them set up a meeting. I, I mean, I
1: think it was pretty common knowledge that he was a frequent visitor of Dona. Um,
0: okay. And I will say,
1: this does not excuse what happened to him. Like personal life doesn't excuse what happened to joe no didn't both deserve of them cheated what happened. she
0: cheated too so
1: didn't deserve what yeah, happened cheating is no to sentence. his whole entire family like i you know adults they did what they did he didn't deserve what happened to him um so because of this rumors immediately started flying that frank jones was responsible for the murders of the moore family to get back at joe for stealing his account and also for the these affairs but a lot of people couldn't believe that Jones, who was in his 50s, would be able to swing an axe to kill an entire family or that mm-hmm. he would do something like that. Because he's hes a state senator. He's kind of high up in the town. But they started to say maybe he hired somebody to do it. I was going to ask. It. A detective, James Newton Wilkerson. Oh, he's a treat. Um, <laughs> He was a Texas land agent and a possible undercover officer out of Kansas. I think that part was very confusing to where it seems like he was sent here to maybe investigate the murders. It was a little confusing what I read, um, but he moved to Villisca and he immediately said that Jones hired William Mansfield to do it. I don't know why. I don't know how Mansfield came onto the radar, but Wilkerson um, he was like set on this and he even went to Moore, who was Joe's brother to tell him like, Hey, Jones did this and he hired Mansfield to kill your brother. Like fact, I have, I have proof that this happened. And because there were already rumors about Jones before Wilkerson even came into the picture, like it just kind of flamed the, it just kind of, you know, fanned yeah. those flames because people were already saying that. And then Wilkerson comes in and he's like, Oh yeah, he did it. And he hired somebody. During the Republican primary in 1916, which Frank Jones was running in. So Wilkerson sent out this flyer to everybody in town. And he asked citizens if they wanted the man responsible for paying Mansfield to kill the Moore family to be their state senator. So, like, yeah, shots fired for sure. This was. And the mudslinging starts. Yeah.
0: This is why I don't like elections.
1: It was a big deal because people were already saying this. So it just kind of added. Um, I want to go back and talk a little bit about William Mansfield, this suspected killer. William Mansfield was from Blue Island, Illinois. He was also known by the names George Worley and Jack Turnbow. Wilkerson believed that Mansfield was actually a serial killer responsible for the axe murder of his wife, child, mother-in-law, and father-in-law on July 5th, 1914. So this was two years after Velisca. Okay. Wilkerson also believed Mansfield was responsible for murders in Paola, Kansas, just four days before Velisca, as well as the murders of Jenny Peterson and Emma Miller in Aurora, Colorado. Also seen her name listed as Jenny Miller, but I believe Mm -hmm. that it's Emma. I think maybe that was a mistake when it was first reported. Um, In Paola, Kansas, Roland and Anna Hudson were Killed in their beds with an axe, and nothing was taken from the house. And there were a lot of similarities with these murders; like they were done um, with an axe. There were just, they were just eerily similar to where it was like they could be connected. Um, yeah. I believe either one or both of them had weird lamp situations with like was the chimney left like, off by the bed. There and were some. Covered. We'll talk more about even more murders um, that that have a lot of similarities like some had the mirrors covered some had the wash basin with the blood in it or dirty water some had you know bacon on the floor I don't think any of bacon on the floor um that was unique but so there were just these similarities and Wilkerson believed that Mansfield for some reason was responsible for all of them including Veliska. So Mansfield was arrested in July 1916 in Kansas. He was questioned in Kansas City and then extradited to Montgomery County, Iowa to face a grand jury. People might not be familiar with a grand jury, I realize. Like people yeah. are not in the United States. It's different than a regular jury that we kind of know about here in the States. I don't know if other countries have them. Um, it's different. It's basically they don't determine guilt or not guilty. They determine if there is enough evidence to bring forth an indictment. Mm-hmm. Um the prosecutor can then decide to go with a recommendation or to go against it. So it's a little different than your regular grand jury. It's done in secret. People don't know what grand juries are talk what they talk about. Um so just that was a real quick like in case people were like what the craps a grand jury? what it is we have it here in the states some states use it some states do not they use prelim hearings wilkerson believed that he could prove mansfield was responsible off of the fact that there were no fingerprints found at the crime scenes of these crimes he believed the killer had i see your eyes like (laughs) stay with me stay with me (laughs) <laughs> wilkerson believed the killer would have worn gloves and concluded that it was a mansfield because mansfield would know that his fingerprints were on file at leavenworth and therefore he would have known to wear gloves that is weak evidence
0: that's like hearsay it's like not even evidence it's what it's a theory that he's trying to go with
1: it's connecting these random thoughts um but it was enough to get a grand jury convened, apparently, and the some of the headlines around this time are awful. There's one out of a Kansas City newspaper. It says, "Quote: Red Oak officials trap Mansfield, the murderer, not alleged, not suspected." Oh my Just god. Like, And one did call him insane, Blackie. So maybe that's where oh that came god. from. Oh my god! Yeah, terrible. Um, there was a man who testified during the grand jury proceedings called RH Thorpe and he said that he recognized Mansfield as a man he saw the morning after the murders boarding a train in Clorinda Iowa and the man said he had walked from Velisca. I looked it up Vellica and Clorinda are about 16 miles apart um, and this is where I went on a it's rabbit a long hole walk yes I googled it and I wanted to see how long it would take to walk from Velisca to Clorinda at the least it would take five hours at the most it would take seven hours. But that's today. I don't know what it would Take in 1912 when geography is different And you might not have As accessible of a path Um, And I was also Wondering about train schedules I loved train schedules I tried to find train schedules I tried to find train schedule because I wanted (laughs) to know Okay well say it took seven hours What was the earliest train that left And based on the time of the Velisca murders would he have been able To walk Mm -hmm. the seven hours to Clorinda and then catch a train to go, I couldn't. They find probably run schedules. like buses.
0: They probably just come like in and I out all day. And he probably just got on the next train.
1: I did look up train along. lines that ran through Iowa in the 1900s. Yeah. So <laughs> I spent way too much time on this. Um, and there, it did look like there was a line. Um, it looked like there was a stop in Clorinda and that the line at one point went north and south, and that the one in Villisca went east and west. So if you go south, obviously you go into Missouri, um, from Clorinda, but I'm like, why? But then when you go north, you run right into Villisca. So I'm like, Mm -hmm. why would somebody go from Villisca walk to Clorinda to catch a train that if they go go north, it's just going to take him in Villisca unless they wanted to go south to Missouri. I don't know. It's one, it doesn't matter. Like it doesn't matter. It's just Little things that I wondered about this is why podcasts take me forever to write up. <laughs> I spend half a day looking at train lines and train times and whatever. But Mansfield had a tight alibi. He was able to prove with payroll records that he was 400 miles away in Illinois at the time that the Moore family was killed. so okay can't really dispute that one but the grand jury deliberated a week with this and that everybody was sure that they were going to come back and he was going to go to trial but instead the grand jury found no sufficient evidence to indict Mansfield he was released on July 21st 1916 Um, and as far as I know Mansfield was never arrested for the murder of his family and But despite this, Wilkerson continued to believe that Mansfield had been hired by Frank Jones to do this. And I I don't know why. I don't like, he's not connected to anything. I don't know how you can say he's responsible for all of these murders. We can't Mm -hmm. even connect him to one. But Wilkerson wouldn't let it go. And um, he believed that Frank Jones had used his people to stack the grand jury and that he believed it was all rigged. Oh, God.
0: We're getting into conspiracy theory territory now. Oh,
1: we're going to get into conspiracy theory territory with this dude. Um, And Wilkerson openly accused Frank Jones and Albert Jones and Mansfield of this and both denied it. And so Jones's career, his political career failed and it split the town um, because Jones was a Methodist. And the Moore family were Presbyterian. So it split the town down the middle with the Methodists taking Jones' side and the Presbyterians taking the Moore side. And Wilkerson couldn't let it go. He held rallies around town telling people that he had the documents to convict Mansfield and the proof that Jones had paid for him to do it, which ticked Jones off. So finally he brings about, he brings forth a slander suit against Wilkerson. Good enough. Which honestly, it really just turned into a whole other trial of you know more people accusing Jones of doing this because Wilkerson's like yeah I said what I said and I stand by it I'm justified in saying this I have the proof
0: oh god yeah yeah
1: there was one quote eyewitness there were a couple quote eyewitnesses questionable eyewitnesses um that testified in the slander suit and one was named Vena Tompkins She testified that in 1911, she had been camping outside of Villisca while her husband had work in town. And that she had heard three men talking about money behind a slaughterhouse in southeast Villisca. She thought one of the men looked like Frank Jones, but she couldn't say for sure if it was him. Then there was a woman named Alice Willard. She was a Villisca resident. She claimed that the week before the murder, she had seen... Um, or she had heard Mansfield and Jones and a couple other men um, plotting to murder the Moore family.
0: It's interesting that they have this, like, slander, like, yeah, kind of contest between the two. And I'm like, meanwhile, there's, like, a whole dead family over here that's, exactly. like, exactly. nobody's remembering.
1: No one ever remembers the victims. It just becomes this, like, circus. So there had Alice said she had seen some strangers in the neighborhood before the murders, and then according to her, she said that she had been with a traveling salesman named Ed McRae, and then her and also her friend either May or Mabel on Saturday night. This was right before the murders. This was the night before the murders. They had all been out driving around late. The car broke down and it stranded them right behind the Moore home. Alice said that she saw these strangers that she had seen earlier kind of talking about murder and got scared. And so she crouches down with Ed McRae and Mabel in this plum thicket. So she's like hiding in the bushes. (laughs) And she said the three strangers were joined by Frank Jones and another man named Burt McCall. According to Alice, they were close enough to the bushes where she was hiding and she heard them say, get Joe first and the rest will be easy. Odd it's story. very specific. It's very yeah, specific. That's, it's also very, very similar to the other story of like strangers, three men meeting, talking about murder. It's just yeah. very similar. There was an insurance salesman named Ed Landers who also testified for Wilkerson in the slander case. Ed and his family had been staying near the Moore home at the time of the murders. Um, at the time during the coroner's inquest, Ed said he didn't see anything suspicious that day. But now at the slander trial, he has a different story to tell. Of course. He says that he had been walking with his wife past the Moore home about 815 on Sunday night and that he saw a man who he identified as Albert Jones walk right into the Moore home. So don't know why you're now telling the story, but. I know. (laughs) It's
0: like everything's coming out during the slander trial and not Mm -hmm. during like the murder investigation.
1: Um, the jury ended up finding Welkerson not guilty of slander, and Jones had to pay the court cost, which pretty much solidified a lot of people's minds that Jones had to, Jones had done this and hired Mansfield, mm-hmm. even though it was a slander trial, it wasn't yeah. even a trial against Jones. But they just, you know, took the time to be like, or took the opportunity to be like, "Oh, hey, it proves it." But it's not over because in March on, in March nineteen seventeen, there was another grand jury that was convened by the um, newly elected county attorney. And he had one on the platform of convening a new grand jury to solve the Velisca murders. And Alice testified again, but her story changed. Oh God. Yes. This time, Alice claimed she heard the men say they were going to catch Joe and Dona together. They were going to sexually assault Dona and castrate Joe. God. Yes totally different stories people are like uh, yeah like what's uh, going on about that and why did you now wait five years to come forward with this
0: all they're doing is muddying whatever Mm -hmm. like clear water they have and they don't have
1: very much well a friend of Alice came forward and said that she had Alice had been offered money from Wilkerson to testify on his behalf during that slander trial But that Alice was holding out because she wanted even more money. So it seems like she may have another motive. Mm -hmm. They were also not able to locate this traveling salesman, Ed McRae, who she claimed to be with. Her friend that she had been with, either May or Mabel, um, she had died right after the murders. Oh, Alice had spoke to another friend about this original story, but he died right after the 1916 Grand Jury. So... There's not a lot of people who can verify her story, but it kind of broke down when, you know, Alice said initially it had been Albert Jones who she saw Frank's son and Albert had a solid alibi for the night that she was talking about. So then she was like, oh, actually, sorry, just kidding. Um, I actually met Frank Jones. I didn't mean Albert. I just misspoke. So her story kind of fell apart after that. Yeah. And she kind of just went on her way. The grand jury met for six weeks and then failed to indict Mansfield again because for the same reason he had an alibi and they let him go because there wasn't anything to tie him to these murders. But to this day, people still believe that Frank Jones hired Mansfield to kill the Moore family. What do you think? I don't know.
0: I mean, it's circumstantial.
1: Mm -hmm. I don't think Mansfield had anything to do with it. I'm not convinced that Frank Jones would not have hired somebody to kill the yeah. family but like would he have hired somebody to kill the whole entire family like kids and all right like what what
0: the little five-year-old too like what's there, what are they gonna do
1: Nothing. or did he hire somebody and say go in and kill joe and then the killer just went out of control and got everybody got everybody and then did weird things to kind of like take attention off to make it seem like it was some weird ritualistic like maybe thing?
0: or like a copycat because if the I don't know if some of the other ones around that you talked about that had similarities, like maybe it was trying to be a copycat of another big ax murder in another state because mm-hmm. if their windows were covered and there were some weird things going on, well, maybe it's like, all right, we're going to try to do this and make it seem like it's the same person and right. it can't be
1: one of us. I don't know. I don't know. Like today, we obviously would hear about all these murders because of we have a 24-hour oh, news yeah. cycle. But 1912, I don't know if, you know, a small town of Villisca is going to hear about a murder in Colorado or yeah. Kansas or any of these other places. So I don't know. I'm not I, I don't think Mansfield had anything to do with it. I don't know why his name came up. It seems like it was just like picked up out of a hat. Yeah. Wrong place. Wrong time, I guess. I don't know. Like, yeah, the guy just I just not know what the finger fixated. at did. But I, I tend to not think that it was Jones. My gut says probably not just because mm-hmm. of the brutality, especially to the children. I know. But then again, I don't know how this guy was. I mean, yeah, the next suspect, maybe this is the one you've heard of. Mm-hmm. Um, Reverend Lynn Kelly. Ooh, not hard of him.
0: Okay. I don't know my suspect's
1: name. Okay. He's another interesting one. Um, Reverend Lynn Kelly had been at the Children's Day celebration at the Moores Church right before the murders. He was a small man, like small. He was 5'2 and 119 pounds. Tiny, bird-like man. Born in England and came over to New York um, with his wife in 1904. According to this Dr. Epperly who researched Villisca, uh, Reverend Kelly had suffered a mental breakdown when he was a kid. And his mom said it was from excessive studying. But it oh, seems God. like it could have been foreshadowing to some things to come. He came to the States to serve the Methodist church and opened his first parish in North Dakota. And then would move from parish to parish for the next 18 years because he never stayed long in one place. Because apparently he had a really hard time managing money but also i grew up catholic and (laughs) i know what happens when priests do things they're not supposed to and they're moved to another parish and it's some random reason of like they can't manage money or this or that so it's pure speculation but i don't know maybe if he was doing something he wasn't supposed to be doing and i say that because of things that come out of what he did um so i don't know speculation the reason given was money, but we'll see. He eventually switched over to the Presbyterian Church, leaving the Methodist behind. He entered into the seminary and was given three open churches the summer of 1912 to serve in. Two of them were not far from Vallisca. The morning after the murders, so this would have been like early in the morning on Monday, Reverend Kelly left Vallisca at 5.19 a.m. by train. He then apparently became obsessed with the murders in the weeks following read everything that he could about them. He talked about them with people. He sent these really long letters to investigators and detectives and also relatives of the victims. Oh. I don't really know what were in these letters, but he just like wrote letter after letter and he even came back to Villisca and asked to go see the murder house. So uh, on one hand i'm like i get being really interested in the case and no you don't reach out to the victim's with it, but not reach out to the victims not going to see, go the see the murder the house. house like right after it happened like okay like we we would go to a place where a crime maybe was committed on like a educational historical true crime tour <laughs> yeah not like go take me to this house it's not a tourist attraction but also i can see him maybe getting obsessed because he was in town at the time yeah and that like triggering that obsession of being like oh my god i was there anybody that
0: left town that morning that was probably suspect
1: Mm -hmm. and it was suspicious these letters especially and investigators kind of took note of this and they started to play kelly a little bit they would like talk him up they said, you know, he was clearly interested in the crime, so they would write him back, and they would talk him up, and they would flatter him, and they would try to get information about maybe what happened that night, mm-hmm. like what did okay. you see, or you know what's going on. And Kelly gave several stories. He would tell these stories. Oh, you're about, such a big help for us. Yes, it's, <laughs> yes. Play you, to his ego. You play them. They're smart. He said, he told these stories. One was that like he was out walking that night and he heard the sound of an axe. And the other was like, he saw the killer walk out onto the porch. He heard the axe? At one point during, yes.
0: You heard it. How close were you to hear it? You're not chopping wood. It's, yeah.
1: So he he told these stories and it was pretty clear to investigators that he wasn't mentally well. Something was going on.
0: Yeah.
1: They didn't really know what they could believe that was coming from him. And a lot of people were like, Nah, he's a small man. He's short. You know, would he have been able to kill eight swing people the with axe? an axe? <laughs> would he have been able to make those marks on the ceiling with how short he was? He's mm-hmm. a tiny guy. Also, he was a reverend. People were like, "He's a reverend," which I don't Some really people, think.
0: I mean, Ted Bundy maybe? once saved a kid, so he he worked for a suicide hotline. Oh, that's right, he did. Yeah. So I, I mean, you never know. Just because you somebody is or does one thing, does not mean that they are. Like, perfect.
1: So they didn't really know what to think about him. But it changed in 1914 because of a personal ad that Reverend Kelly took out in the newspaper. Kelly was living in Winter, South Dakota. He took out an ad for a private secretary to type for him. And a woman named Jessamine Hodgson answered the ad. She was interested in the position. And it seemed really great until Kelly told her she was going to have to type naked. What? yes no i have red flag city <laughs> oh my god can you imagine you have a whole you... color
0: guard full of red flags performing in front of you <laughs> flag, right red now
1: red flag red flag red flag <laughs> buckets of red flag red flag for you red flag for you everybody gets a red flag. everybody gets a red flag <laughs> um can you imagine finding a job you're like yeah this seems really good and then they're like oh yeah by the way you're gonna have to do it naked no <laughs> like, no sorry what Poor Jessamine. She tells her pastor, first of all. Her pastor then tells the police, who then tells the post office with this letter. Post office? Yes. I like the way they're in the line of who needs
0: to know this
1: and what they do is they start writing these like dummy letters to Kelly pretending to be Jessamine like very flattering with him trying to get all these details about the job and he gets more obscene as he writes like more letters he writes he gets more obscene and raunchy so then they arrest him for sending obscene material through the mail oh (laughs) which okay I'm not excusing they kind of entrapped him, did, him a little bit. But I'm, I'm like that's entrapment. I don't think you're allowed to do that. Can you? Like I mean, yeah, I'm glad that they got him that's... off the street, but I don't think you're allowed to do that. He was arrested, went to trial, and he was sentenced in May 1914. Originally, he was sentenced to Leavenworth uh Federal Penitentiary, but ended up going to a mental hospital, a mental health hospital in Washington D.C. Okay. for treatment after that. So, well, you can't see me. You See my head. <laughs> no, just see your eyes. <laughs> so he's guilty so, of being a perv, but not of being yeah, a murderer. Possibly, But <sighs> he kind of stayed on the radar because at this point, you know, the Mansfield Jones angle's gone. Mm-hmm. He's on the police radar. They go back, yeah. back and forth for years about this guy. Like something just doesn't seem right. So finally... um. In April 1917, he an indictment is returned and a bench warrant is issued for his arrest. This is five years after the murder and is three years after this whole like naked ad. Naked secretary. Thing. <laughs> so this is a lot of time, but Kelly arrives in Iowa um, on May 14, 1917, and voluntarily surrenders to the Montgomery County Sheriff. Okay and good old wilkerson's back so oh god this guy wilkerson raises money for kelly's defense because he's still not letting go of the whole frank jones and thing, oh, thing. dude he still believes this and he believes that kelly is being set up to take the fall to take the heat off of jones so wilkerson Somebody. gives him his defense attorney to defend kelly
0: somebody could confess and offer up proof of things that they took from the house or something at that point, And he would still not believe that that person did it. Cause he would you know be who after. he What's is.
1: He's a QAnon member. Oh my God. He, he is. is a 1912 QAnon member. And that's the easiest way to describe him. That's what I thought of. I'm like, he will not let this go. No matter the evidence in front of him, he will not get off this Jones Mansfield train. So he ends up like raising a lot of money for Kelly in his defense, and um, the state said they had several pieces of evidence against Kelly. one was his mental state, and they said his sexual obsession,
0: okay, but mental like illness and things is not
1: nope doesn't it's make not, you a
0: murderer. Nope. I mean, I know they had a different attitude back then, but it's like that's not evidence, it's just, nope.
1: and they lump that in with his weird like sexual things
0: I mean that's you just being a pervert, yeah. You're also a man of God, so should you not be a pervert, maybe?
1: Police also said they had a bloody shirt that he had cleaned the week after the murders. Kelly allegedly talked about the murders before they were even discovered to a couple on the train.
0: Where's this couple on the train that's like, oh, crap, there was these murders this guy just told me about. Like, maybe I should just tell somebody when I get off at this stop. Like, this guy said he murdered, like, six people.
1: Absolutely. People I don't think four. he confessed to murdering them. I think he talked about them before the bodies. Yeah. They said before the bodies were discovered.
0: Well, then how would he know?
1: He could have done it. We're going to talk about his confession. Yeah. He could have maybe wandered around the scene. We don't, we don't know. I don't think he's like, I do think he's having some mental health issues for yeah. sure.
0: Like, I'm not trying to like be for or against him or anything. It just seems like too, but where are these witnesses? Like suddenly years later, it's like... Like, this guy talked about these murders, and I'm like, just say If it's something. somebody
1: on the train, if he's talking about these murders, if it's somebody on a train, they may end up somewhere totally different and not yeah, know about not it. Yeah, like, not know
0: or care, yeah.
1: They might not hear anything about it. They might be like, oh, that's awful, that's terrible, and not realize, mm-hmm. like, Oh, he's talking about this at six in the morning and the bodies aren't discovered till eight. How did he know about that? So
0: this is when they wish they had like earbuds and stuff in like the 1900s or something. It's like, don't talk to me on a plane. If I have earbuds in, it means I don't want to talk. Can you imagine oh, somebody sitting next to you on a plane? and am like, let me tell you about these murders of these eight people.
1: I'd be like, what? We'd be like, like, tell me like I'd be like all right flyers go I may away. Have some snacks please can I have my snacks early all right let's 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 do this give me some water give me some of those peanuts let's talk about this we got popcorn we um, got two hours let's go I don't need the
0: movie <laughs> what landing's delayed that is okay
1: <laughs> yeah we have okay. a totally different response than normal most people, people. Would. normal, normal people. people would be horrified. Yes. <laughs> We would be. I'd be like, give me a notebook. He got a notebook. I gotta take notes on this.
0: It probably depends on the manner in which they were talking. If they were like, it's sort of a discussion, like you and I have, okay. But if they're just like, let me tell you about this, and they were being kind of creepy, I'd be like, uh, <laughs>
1: Can I change seats, please? Is there an air marshal on the plane? <laughs> <laughs> yeah,
0: I need to switch seats.
1: Yes. <laughs> so Kelly did confess to the crimes, or he gave a confession to the crimes. Okay after he was questioned questionably for hours and repeatedly because investigators really needed something well you decide I'll, i'll talk about what happened with his confession um on august 30th several men including the attorney general a couple states agent and a county attorney brought kelly in and began grilling him for hours all through the night about you know what did you do? Tell us what happened. They were just going at him. And then every once in a while, they would return him to his cell, where two thieves would talk to Kelly and be like, you know what, it's just going to be a lot easier if you just confess to this. Uh, So turns out these thieves were a deputy sheriff in in Pottawatomie County, and a newspaper editor who were trying to set him up. Oh my god. Yes. So
0: we didn't have ethics back then.
1: Somebody say we you don't think we have ethics now. <laughs> like, police can do stuff like this. Like they can do whatever they want to get a confession. They're very disappointed in the tech newspaper editors. I just like that there's a county called Pottawatomie and then I could pronounce it.
0: <laughs> Good for you.
1: That's I the know. First time we probably
0: pronounced it correctly. I Somebody's practiced. gonna email us and be like, actually, actually. it's pronounced this
1: way. <laughs> And I will not listen to them. Sorry. (laughs) You don't understand how many times I practiced that yesterday.
0: (laughs) We need our victories. Please. Just one. Meanwhile, Kelly confessed and uh, Wilkinson's like, damn it.
1: (laughs) (laughs) No, he'll just figure out, you know. It's got to figure out a conspiracy theory about around them. it. That's what happens. Mansfield <laughs> hired <laughs> Kelly. <laughs> Frank Jones hired Mansfield and Mansfield, and Mansfield hired Kelly. Kelly and paid Kelly with the money from Mansfield. So technically I'm still right. <laughs> At 7 a.m. on August 31st, Kelly gave his confession. He said the night of the murders, he wasn't able to sleep. So he went out for a walk. He had been walking down the middle of the street when he saw a house with a light on and two children, Lena and Ina Stillinger. Kelly said he then heard the Lord's voice telling him to, quote, suffer the children to come unto me, end quote. No. In a trance, he went to the back of the house, grabbed the axe, went through the kitchen door, and killed everyone. He said he stayed until it started to get light and then left out the front door, which is kind of what happened. Um
0: and, I mean, the mirrors, like superstitions and hearing mm-hmm. voices I might mean, be like a... the
1: voices and kind of the unhinged crime I scene. wonder
0: if he could, like, say something else, like, that only, like, the killer might know. Of course, there's people just all up in the house that day, but, like, could he answer questions about the lamps or what, where was the pocket watch? Like, what did you...
1: I like something I honest, I could he give some no. kind of detail that people might not know i think at this point they just really wanted like yeah they really wanted a confession so they just went with it but all that information could have been stuff that was out to and the general could public yeah. and he was obsessed with the case so he probably read everything that he could read about i don't know if any details were held back i don't know um
0: Sometimes people confess the crimes they didn't commit. Like one guy did it for JonBenet Ramsey,
1: mm-hmm. and yeah.
0: I don't know why they do it. I forgot the, the man's name, but
1: so I mean I don't know if he just thought that maybe I'll just give him something, and if I say that the Lord told me to do it, maybe it won't be as bad for me. I don't, uh, I don't know, but it's know. it's creepy. Um, it's creepy because the crime scene was creepy. And the crime scene just seems really odd. brutal
0: and unnecessary.
1: Brutal and unnecessary. And then the That's mirrors the- and the bacon and the lamps. It's just, it's very odd. And Kelly is seems to like a very odd man. His confession was withdrawn before the trial because of the way that the police obtained it. So he withdrew okay, his confession. Good. And I don't believe that it was given um, as evidence in the trial. The trial started September 4th and lasted until September 26th. The jury deadlocked 11 to 1 for acquittal, and it was dismissed on September 28th. Okay. There was a second trial in November, and Kelly was found not guilty on all charges. Um, wow. Oh, I missed. I. So ultimately, Kelly was only charged with the death of Lena Stillinger, based on the fact That her murder seemed sexual in nature, even though she had not been sexually assaulted. It seemed sexual in nature. And because of Kelly's apparent, like, sexual obsession, Uh they only charged him for um, Lena. So they probably thought they had a better chance of getting a conviction on Lena than they did on any of the other victims.
0: uh, Because there
1: really wasn't physical evidence. So it was only Lena and not the rest of the family. That's weird. Oh, I have to splice that in because I forgot that part. Um, after this, no one really knows where Reverend Kelly ended up. They don't know when he died. They don't know where he died. They don't know where he was buried. He just kind of went off onto the horizon. And nobody knew what happened to him. So what do you think on Kelly?
0: Gosh, I don't know. It's so hard to say because you, you can make an argument for or against.
1: Mm-hmm. I think the... I think he clearly had some mental health problems mm-hmm. and so the way the crimes were done and the crime scene, I can see it being somebody like him just because it was so odd and just mm-hmm. it, almost like a frenzy of just, I don't know, but then he's so small. But then like, they, could he could have they have that?
0: given him the ax and be like, all right, swing this. Like, let's do a little, I don't I want don't... to say recreation because that's terrible when you think about it, but like could was he physically able to do it
1: yeah i don't know i is so small probably he may have been tired
0: but who knows he could be stronger than people think
1: you know they're sleeping it's not like they're coming at him so it takes one hit and you've incapacitated somebody And then would he cover their faces, you know, like, because all their faces were covered. Covering the faces, not wanting to see them, being ashamed maybe of what you've done, of, you know, I'm being told by the Lord to do this. I don't want to, but I have to. So I don't, I'm going to cover your face. I'm going to cover the mirrors. He's a religious person. Yeah. He would think about their souls and not wanting their souls to be trapped. So i go back and forth on him. We just
0: don't have enough. We don't have enough to say either way.
1: I believe he was staying with Reverend Ewing, who was the reverend at the Presbyterian Church. Did anybody ask him? Like, did he walk out at night? Mm. Did he go out on a walk? Yeah. I'm assuming he had luggage with him, and he would have had to go back to his house to get it. He just went out for a walk that night. You know, he would have left his luggage back where he was staying. He would have had to go back there before the train, and he probably would have been covered in blood. So yeah did nobody notice him walking back in covered in blood? I just there's so many questions that I still have where I can't see say yes or no.
0: This is going to be one of those cases that's never solved. No, I don't think it's ever because going to be it solved. can't
1: be no Another suspect is it goes along kind of ties in with the um Mansfield theory of mm-hmm. the serial killer, but its names another person. His name is Henry Lee Moore. no relation to the Moore family at okay. all. But it is the traveling serial killer theory. This is um, the one that I've heard of. Mm-hmm. To me, this is the one that actually makes the most sense. I don't remember a name. Henry Lee Moore. Also, he has three names. He goes by three names. That's a classic serial killer trait: is three names. <laughs> he, goes that, he goes a, like, by that because I know like Henry Lee Moore.
0: Modern times, they give them three names, but it's so they're not confused with somebody else. Like there could be
1: another he's the third freaking John Henry Gacy in the story. somewhere.
0: Yeah, like John Gacy could be a. <laughs> you know relatively common name but john wayne gacy like differentiates him from all the innocent john gacy's in the world
1: Mm -hmm. henry lee moore was born november 1st 1874 in missouri Um, his dad was a farmer and a civil war vet and his mom was a nurse he also had two brothers henry was sentenced to kansas state reformatory in the early 1900s for a forgery case and he was released in 1911 in 1912 he took a job on the railroad Okay. Between 1911 and and 1912, there were a string of murders that we've talked about a few already. They were very similar to the Velisca murders. I mentioned um, the one in Paola, Kansas, and then the one in Colorado. These murders that happened in that span were all axe murders that at least, I've heard 10 or up to like 20 murders Mm -hmm. that happened that were very similar. And many of them happened near train tracks and um so this led a lot of people to believe that it was a transient serial mm-hmm. killer that was using the railway to escape obviously velisca had a um i really almost at home depot i almost at <laughs> home depot oh my god
0: mental block on this i wonder wall. if there's a home depot in velisca like today
1: <laughs> i bet there is home depot next to the train depot <laughs> um, So obviously, with Velisca being next to a depot, there would be several trains that would come and go during the day. There were murders that happened as far away as Washington State, and then back to the Midwest in Illinois. In 1913, Special Agent McClowry of the Justice Department Bureau of Investigation—so this was before the FBI—he believed that this whole string of railway serial killings started in Colorado Springs in September 1911. When a family of six was killed. Then there was a murder of three in Monmouth, Illinois with a pipe, or it was with a pipe, not an axe. Yeah. And then in Ellsworth, Kansas, where five people were killed. God. <clears throat> then came Paola, Kansas, which I mentioned before, where Roland Hudson and his wife were killed only a few days before Velisca. Murder weapon was an axe. Special agent believed the last killing was December 1912 in Columbia, Missouri, where Mary Wilson and her daughter, Georgia Moore, were murdered. Georgia Moore was Henry Lee Moore's mom, and Mary Wilson was his grandma. So Uh because of this and his record and violent past, McClowry believed that Moore was responsible for his family's murders, as well as the ones that spanned the country, including Velisca. Moore was convicted of the murders of his mom and grandma but that murder was personal he had killed them because he wanted the deeds to the family house so mm-hmm. he killed his family so it's a little different and if you look at Velisca you know there's not a clear motive and also it would be very rare for a serial killer to return to his home and kill yeah. it's That's a big jump from forgery to
0: murder in your family to get their house
1: and also then to like wipe out a whole entire family yeah It seems like he killed his family, but I don't know if you can connect him to all the other ones. Um, I think that there is a strong case that the Veliska murders were part of a string of serial killer serial um, serial murders done by someone using the trains because it makes the most sense. They're going to come in and out of town. You're just going to be some face in a crowd that somebody sees maybe for a day or two. And then you hop right back on a train and you're gone to a whole other place. How do you find place.
0: somebody like that though? Do you lay in wait for him? Do you follow him home? Do you just like, like how would he know there know. was an axe unless he had something with him and decided, found the axe later and thought it would be better? I don't know. Like, that's... So
1: the axe, I don't really, I think we see it now as odd that, you know, he would, he would get his weapon from someone's home mm-hmm. and that he would get an axe. But you have to think at that time, like it was. Pretty common to have an axe in your home. Oh yeah, you had a chop wood things. It's kind of a staple. Um, you have families that are living in rural homes. You're going to have, you know, they're going to be their homes are going to be heated by fireplaces, wood burning stoves. So it's pretty typical. So you have somebody who decides my murder weapon's going to be an axe. If he's going to be able to go to these kind of like agriculturally heavy Midwest towns, he's going to assume that there's going to be an axe around. And then yeah. he just leaves. Like, he he leaves, and then he's no longer connected with a murder weapon. So I don't really think that that's odd. Was that what you were saying? Was that your question? Like, why yeah. do you come into town and just take someone's axe and do it?
0: Well, not, like, someone's axe, but it's, like, how do you pick your victims? Like, it seems like if you don't know anybody there, I feel like some random killers would just, like, not, like, stake them out. Or why would you pick, like, a family of, like, eight people? Why not go somewhere where there's, like, three people or something just to make it a little easier to get in and out without being caught
1: but maybe that's the thrill for them yeah i guess so he reminds me of um whoever did this reminds me of israel keys kind of yeah like way before his time if you haven't heard of israel keys just research him i can't even describe what he did it's it was crazy like his method but he would choose random people in random states and then Transport maybe that's part of it you know it's
0: states. like all right once i've got fixated on this one then that's it and then you know
1: he could have you know it could have been his thing to get into a town sit at a restaurant watch people go by see someone yeah. and be like i like that person it really could have just oh, been so scary it could so have just been wrong place about. wrong time that they walked by him and he decided that's my victim Um, I think the, the serial killer theory makes the most sense to me and why no one saw anything. If he would have, he had that watch, if he had that pocket watch, he would know I need to make it to the train, to the train station at this time to catch a train. I need to keep an eye on the time. If he leaves at, you know, three, four in the morning, no one's going to be up. It's dark. He walks right to the train station and just hangs out waiting for his train and then he's gone
0: that would be so weird like what if that kelly um priest guy was on the train with the real killer at the same been. time
1: he could have been what if he's he could have been heard him? him
0: talking about all this i still don't know how he talked about it before the bodies were found it had to have been after or something it had to been after heard about it was a
1: misunderstood they misunderstood it had to have been or maybe it wasn't who knows i don't know i'm still not sold that kelly's innocent, Yeah, we don't know what
0: time they found the bodies right well we do kind of because the neighbor it was around over. eight. yeah okay
1: She noticed about seven. Hank Horton got there about eight o'clock. And also another point about someone choosing an axe that. So a lot of these, a lot of the similarities with these cases, people pointed out that they were done at night with an axe. Mm -hmm. But with an axe, when you think about it, an axe is going to be useless against a moving target. So it makes sense that if the killer is deciding to use an axe, it's going to be at night because you're not going to. You're not gonna be as successful to commit these murders with somebody who's running after you.
0: And plus you're not gonna be successful if it's the middle of the day either. Right. Everybody's gonna be awake and see you.
1: So the similarities with this. So three of them happened on a Sunday night. Four of the cases had victims with their faces covered, and two had lamps with chimneys removed and the wicks bent down, just like Veliska. So those are pretty oh. specific similarities yeah. that were found.
0: That's not something you do to put out the, the lamp at night, is it? Like, is it not you take the chimney off and bend the wick down? When you, you, I, I thought you just blew know. it out or something. I
1: think you just blow it out. Me too. Because you're not going to touch it. You're not going to touch the wick. It's right, on. Right, that's true.
0: It's lit. Maybe that's the equivalent of taking the batteries out of somebody's flashlight or, like, unscrewing light bulbs so nobody can turn on a light. Like, nobody can go light a lamp real fast because the wick is messed up and the chimneys are gone. Yeah. I don't really know how oil lamps work, but... I don't either. Like maybe that's the thing. So nobody can like if the family wakes up or if somebody does survive, they can't turn on a lamp and um, mm-hmm. like see anything. Or
1: yeah, does that make sense? It does make sense. It
0: so maybe it's like if I just break it all and separate it, then it's useless to them.
1: Yeah, and I do wonder if the killer was in the house. Like how much they did beforehand. Like obviously you're not going to be covering the mirrors because the family. No, gets because they're, they're going like, to come home and hell hell be are like, our "What the curse covered." <laughs> um. But maybe doing something to the lamps or maybe I don't know.
0: And I wonder about like the nine one 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 operator when she heard the footsteps yeah. coming up and the door, not like is that connected in any way? I don't or is know. Is that just That's Knight so Henry odd. making his rounds or
1: I still think he would I think I still think Knight Henry would be like, You okay in there? Like Yeah, do you need I don't anything? think drifter- just me. Hey, it's just me. Yeah. And then no one answers to be like maybe he then tries to go in to make sure she's okay. I don't think that they'd be so quiet.
0: And I don't think a night drifter serial killer would know where the local 911 station is. I don't know. Unless he was just Again. staking out the area just to see how like staffed they were and
1: he could have seen her go into the office.
0: Yeah. She
1: could have been That's a potential true. victim. Who knows? I just there's so much we don't know about this because the evidence, you know, there was a lot of evidence that was messed up. There's such weird evidence, yeah. which it just makes me think that it was somebody who was traveling and was never seen in town again. Um, there was a man, they call him a hobo. I don't think that that term mm-hmm. is politically correct at this point. His name was Andy Sawyer. He was suspected for a while because he showed some weird behavior and he talks about the murders a lot. He was transient. Um, he was turned in by somebody who he asked to work for who worked on the railways, but he was cleared pretty quickly. Um, It was found that he was in a town about 70 miles away from Villisca, the night of the murders and that Mm -hmm. he was arrested for vagrancy and put in jail for the night. And then the sheriff was like, I put him on a train at like 11 o'clock at night to leave. So he, he couldn't have committed the murders. And so after Kelly was acquitted for the second time, like the case pretty much was just finished. It, they were like we don't we don't know. We don't have leads, we don't have suspects. We don't really know who did this and the case remains unsolved today. Nobody I don't knows think it'll ever be this. solved. I don't think it will either, unless some evidence comes forward that, you know I don't know what a descendant <laughs> of somebody finds a letter or if they, yeah, <laughs> if they I mean, I don't even think they have DNA. I don't think they have, you know, I don't even think you could test the DNA on the Axe at this point, so many no, people be too... contaminated it. The axe yeah. is somewhere, I believe, the axe is in a museum in Des Moines, like a historical museum in Des Moines, yeah. and eventually it will go to the Velisca Historical Society when they have a building to house it. I don't believe oh, okay. they have a building, like, they have the historical society but they don't have a building. It's theirs. It has been like gifted and granted to them, but Des Moines keeps it for them. So okay. the axe is still around. And But I don't think anything could be done at it from this point.
0: Is the house a museum now? I Google and pictures of it to see what it looks it. like. It happened to oh, the, <laughs> the house.
1: So the house kind of had several owners after the murder. It was, you know, it remained in a state right after it. It had several owners like savings and loan it was titled to a couple of different families. In 1994, it was told, it was sold to the uh, sp- uh, Sprague or Sprague family, I believe. And it was in danger of being torn down at that point. Like They were oh, just no. going to tear the whole thing down. And so a man named Darwin Lynn, he put an offer on it, which is kind of like, eh, kind of want to save it. He lowballed an offer. And I believe it was like It was in 1994, like early 1994, mid-1994 when he gave this offer. And they were told, you have until like the first of the next year to find out like what offer we accept. It was a pretty long process. So he lowballs his offer, completely forgets about it, and then gets like informed, (laughs) hey, you won. You own a house now. And he was like, like, oh, crap. He owns, I own this murder house. So he had to convince his wife To take it, but they ended up restoring it to its original condition from oh, 1912. That's good. They won this like restoration award. um It's on the historical, the National Register of Historic Places. So it's not going anywhere, it's not going to be torn down. um There was a barn raising there in 2004, which I love because it brings like joy and happiness to the home. <laughs> barn um, raisings. Yes. Uh, the house is now open for tours and overnight stays but it's just not for people who want to investigate the paranormal or true crime. Um I will go into one paranormal story that is insane that I have heard. But you have a lot of um you have a lot of families that come through. So there's there's a man his name is Johnny Hauser. He's kind of the he's kind of the caretaker, groundskeeper, he kind of does a little bit of everything and he said that I listened to a podcast um the Haunted Road podcast, he was interviewed and he says, you'll get a lot of families coming through that want to come through and stay the night. There was a woman's group that they choose one unsolved case every year and they work to try and solve it. And oh, cool. one year they chose Velisca. So they stayed in the house overnight.
0: How do we join this group?
1: I know. Ladies, contact us. <laughs> um, contact he's us, had please. just like friends, like group of women friends who go on Trips every year and find unique places, and he said, you know, they'll stay the night, and you know, the next day he'll go out and he'll find like wine bottles thrown away, and he loves it because it's just like it's bringing happiness and joy back into the home. It's
0: an odd outlook, but okay. I I, I like that it. outlook. Like, I
1: like that outlook. I yeah. am a big believer in murder victims not only being known for their murders. Mm-hmm.
0: I like that, like bringing joy and happiness back into the home. I like the way of. I think that looking important. at it that way. I haven't heard it that way, put that way before.
1: I think about that a lot, about, like, would I ever buy a house if I knew that there was a murder committed there? I mean, I could. I think I would, because I would want to bring something good into the house and bring some kind of good energy and have my own life there, mm-hmm. and I like that they do that with Felisca. I wouldn't I be just, like,
0: come see the axe murder house, you know, like, right. reenactments or any kind of weird stuff like that, because that was just gross.
1: It's but. disrespectful. Um mm-hmm. To do things like that, I think, you know, the Moors are known for their murders, but they were so much more than their murders. Mm -hmm. They were a family and they were a mom and dad and kids and the kids didn't have a chance to grow up. They didn't have a chance to, you know to grow up and go to school and make friends and have more overnights and move out on their own and get married or maybe inherit the house. Like they didn't have a chance to do that. And so I think it's really important that the house is still there, that it wasn't knocked down because then it just becomes, oh, there's the spot where those Veliska murders happened. But now it's like you have the house and you can actually go in and you can be where that family was and you can see like what they lived mm-hmm. in. And it makes them so much more than just their murders. And I right. always think that's so much more important that like they were actual people. And so I, I really like what they are doing. And Johnny Hauser said that like he he wants his kids to take over that house. He never wants that house to change because he wants people to really for him. appreciate what it is. But he was not a paranormal believer when he moved in. He was just like, oh, this is cool. Like, it's a true crime house. But his attitude has since changed. And I'm going to tell a little bit about that just briefly. One paranormal story that's a crazy story. And it kind of changed his outlook on it because... There are some weird paranormal happenings there. People, you know, people do go in to investigate. They stay overnight and they have things like footsteps and closing doors. Mm -hmm. They may hear children. Um, But this thing that happened to this gentleman that went to investigate is kind of next level crazy as far as paranormal investigating go. So the article that I read was a vice article. And it was titled "The Time a Ghost Hunter Stabbed Himself at My Axe Murder Museum." Oh my god! By Julian Morgan's. <laughs> the first I first heard this man and saw this man on the episode of Kindred Spirits, and he went on the episode. And you could like you take things with grain of, of with a grain of salt on TV. This man seemed legitimately scared, and his life has been turned upside down for this. He has a lot of health problems because of it, Oh, and. No. He seemed terrified to go back into this house. And so this was 2014. The man's name was Robert Larson Jr. You can look it up. I'm not like outing him or anything. Okay. He was coming for an overnight investigation with his parents to the Villisca house. So Johnny Hauser was there, the caretaker. He saw Robert. He thought it was kind of weird. Like, okay, you're with your parents, but whatever. Like you do whatever you want to do.
0: Okay. Maybe it's a family activity.
1: Yeah. <laughs> Johnny said that Robert told him he was going to go into that house and he was going to give it a piece of his mind. Oh, which is a bad idea. That's a you bad do attitude you to go don't in with. Don't pro- don't provoke. Especially, I mean, I'd when
0: go ghost had... hunting with my mom, but I wouldn't want to. Yeah. We wouldn't be. You don't angry provoke about it. You no. don't provoke.
1: You don't. That we're not going to be aggressive. Bad juju, especially when you had this awful thing happen in this house. Johnny noticed that um, Robert had a knife with him. He had like a buck knife on his belt later, he would be told, Robert said he usually had um, a gun with him, but he didn't know Iowa laws for concealed carry. So Mm -hmm. he left his gun at home and he brought a knife with him just for protection, wanted to bring a knife. Um, Johnny Hauser, the caretaker, said it's not, it's Iowa. It's not weird to see somebody with a (laughs) knife on them. It's not that big of a deal. And like I said, at the time, Johnny didn't believe in ghosts or anything. So um, he said that there were no red flags with Robert. Nothing seemed really weird. He just seemed like a normal guy who wanted to ghost him. So that night, Robert went into the house all by himself. He left his parents. Um, they had like a they have like a separate building that you can sit in, like outside the house. Okay. Left his parents there. Robert decided to go into the house by himself. Sitting in one of the kids' rooms, and he started provoking. He started yelling. He started. Dude, no. Like, Going after the possible killer, just being really nasty, almost like a come-at-me-bro type of thing. Um, And then he said, he would say later, he remembers seeing like a light over by the door, and then everything went black. His parents heard him screaming, went in and found him with the knife stuck in his chest. Oh my God. On the floor. Yes. And he was the only one in the house? Yes, only one in the house. He was the only people on the property at that point. They had the life flight him to Omaha, where he almost died from blood loss. Dear God. Yes. He came back. The doctors determined that the stab wound was self-inflicted. He wakes up in the hospital. He has no idea. He doesn't remember what happened. He completely blacked out. And so the next morning, Johnny Hauser's is contacted. He wakes up to this, like, man like hearing this man was stabbed in the Veliska house he's like oh my god he has to go in and clean the house up and he said he walks in and sees like a blood-covered teddy bear and he said his first thought was like oh my god not again not again Oh God, i would think so too and the owner the wife i believe her name is martha she came in she was crying she's like should we shut down like this is this can be bad and johnny said no because then you're gonna have this whole story of like the house is evil and people are gonna try and break in yeah Let's just like, we'll address it. We'll go with it. But That's no, the like best we need policy. to keep going. Just be honest. Yeah. Johnny Houser ended up meeting Robert Larson years later when Robert did the Kindred Spirits episode. Johnny was like, what happened? And he said, Robert Larson was really emotional. He was crying. He said his life had been awful since then. Everyone thought he was crazy. Everyone thought he was making it up. And he was like, I, my life has been Awful because of this like I don't want this anymore I want to tell my story to let people know I'm not insane I I stabbed myself but I didn't stab myself I I mm-hmm. did not do this to myself it in was my right bad mind spirit.
0: it was a bad spirit that got him
1: he did go back into the house afterward and um Johnny Hauser was in there and said so the first thing Robert did when he walked back in was to apologize I bet he was yeah mm-hmm. he said he was sorry he didn't mean to yell he didn't mean to scream he was sorry for all of it and just to kind of like give himself closure for all of it yeah but after that johnny said you know i don't think a ghost stabbed him but something bad Mm -hmm. was in that house and something came out and he will now tell people who go on these investigations he will say because he's had other people report feeling really weird in the house like something doesn't feel right he tells Mm -hmm. people if you feel off don't push it, go outside. Go outside, take some deep breaths, get fresh air, walk around, don't go back into that house until you are mentally okay to go back in. Cause there's something, there's something weird uh-huh. in that house. He doesn't believe the children are there, but he yeah. believes that something's in that house. That's whether it's the killer, whether it is just something that's kind of gravitated toward the energy of what's happened in yeah. there. Yeah. But he also believes you're gonna get what you ask for when you go in if you, yeah, go, in if you go in aggressive
0: you're gonna to, get aggression
1: it, you're gonna get aggression if you go in looking you know for a lighter side of like maybe contacting the kids or the more family like you're gonna get the positive of it so that's just a lesson don't provoke anywhere you go so I would love to go to Villisca and stay at the house overnight and see what happens because I wouldn't be surprised if it's haunted I mean
0: oh I wouldn't be surprised at all I
1: it's I don't think you can have a place where something happens. that's that big and like, and not have some kind of haunting after whether it's the kids. I don't know. I don't think it necessarily has to be the family. It could just be, you know, spirits or entities that get drawn to that, Mm -hmm. to the energy, or it could be kids and they're like, you know, or it could be some other spirits that just get drawn to it. And they're like, huh, there's a lot of people coming in and out of here. Like, I can have some contact. I can have some I'm not so alone, so I'm gonna stay in this house. So I don't know. It's just it's just my theory. But I think anyhow she goes. You have to be respectful of what happened. And You do Don't mess with dark stuff. Don't mess with dark stuff. (laughs) I mean Sometimes you have to, but whatever.
0: <laughs> no Ouija boards in the Philistica. No Ouija people. boards. Don't,
1: I do know like at Waverly, you're not allowed to do Ouija boards.
0: Good. I don't, I stay away yeah. from them anyway.
1: Yeah. Those are, I don't mess with that.
0: Um, I, I try not to open portals to <laughs> other worlds where just anything can come in. <laughs> I I would never mean to do it. But... <laughs> Kristen, did you accidentally open a
1: portal again? Sorry. <laughs> So that's Villisca. the Veliska's Villisca crazy murders. I know.
0: Yeah, I knew the story about you know the family being murdered and then the prevailing theory about possibly a serial killer that went around and committed other ones. I didn't know that the faces were covered and there was bacon on the floor and there was
1: bacon and the weird lamps stuff. and, and the, the
0: girl's underwear under the
1: bed. Which oh, I didn't give my weird. theory on that about oh, why okay. that could happen really quick. So I was thinking like. I don't want to believe that it was an attempted sexual assault, but I think like okay, kids move around a lot in their sleep. I used yeah. to wear those nightgowns. Like I used to wear a nightgown when I was little. I wake up and the nightgown would be like pulled up because I've been oh yeah, goofy. it's like I've been to rolling hear. around. I've been moving. Like even when I was older, and I'd wear like pajama pants, I'd wake up and one would be like booty shorts. I'm like, yeah, How did that happened. So. That's not weird. The underwear is also weird, but maybe she got hot during the night and was like, "What this underwear on? She takes her underwear off again, kids do weird things. I've done things like that in my sleep, and I don't remember it like I wake up and I'm like, "Where did my top go? Like, I, and it's just I get hot during the night, and I apparently mm-hmm. take off clothes. So yeah, I think that that could be a reason as well.
0: I don't know. I just rule out sexual assault as and motivation just because it would have been done. Because the killer obviously had the time and the opportunity, yeah, but it wasn't done. So,
1: yeah, that's true. I don't know. I don't. I I tend to go more toward the thinking that it was a serial killer that was using the trains to get yeah. from place to place, and that's why there was just they were just gone. I don't know how they didn't leave blood. I don't know how. I don't know how they made it to the train station without anybody seeing anything. I wish but, we like had said... more information
0: about some of the other ones too, because I mean, the mirrors can be covered in some, and then you know the the lamps could be broken up in some. But you know, again, maybe the guy just like kind of perfected it, and maybe he did. Like, what were there footprints at the other ones, at the other scenes, and was there oh. blood outside of the houses?
1: I don't know. I don't think any of them have been solved.
0: I still think he changed clothes.
1: That is a good theory.
0: I still think that he either undressed and either did it and he was nude or he bought a change of clothes and then just put them all in a bag and just took that with him. And maybe he stashed it in a closet or someplace where he wouldn't get blood on it so he could clean himself up and then leave the house without any blood stains at all on it.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And if he was there before the family was back from church, he would have had that time. Yeah. To a lot of people think that it, there was a, um, the person was familiar with the house, but I think, again, they would have had time to go look around and see what they yeah, needed Yeah, I mean, to find. I Googled a
0: picture of it, and it's, it seems like it's pretty easy to get around. You can just peek your head in the rooms and
1: know where everything is. Right. I did get curious that night because I was like, there was no lights. I, I looked up what moon phase would have been that night, and you can find <laughs> that information. You can find that information. I believe it was a waning gibbous something. I think it was waning, which means the light is... It's going more toward, more towards the dark moon or the new moon, yeah. so there's not gonna be a ton of light. So I was surprised. I was surprised you can find
0: <laughs> moon phases from so. back in nineteen
1: twelve. So that's cool. Yeah. I I looked up sunrise and sunset. Sunset between probably seven forty seven and eight o'clock in Ballisca at that point. <laughs>
0: They should make some kind of TV show where there's a time traveler, but they're from modern day, 2021, and they travel back in, like, the 1900s to solve, like, older crimes. Like, granted, you don't have forensics or anything, you're limited as to what technologies you have, but at least they have the knowledge of, like like train schedules and like the moon like you said like at least they would take sort sort of that stuff into account like they know mm-hmm. that we're gonna have telephones and stuff so they can be like all right call the next train station tell them to hold the passengers coming from Veliska. like don't let anybody get off the train right.
1: <laughs> that would be a fun show it would almost it would be, be a fun like show drama comedy type of thing because these yeah. people are like how does this person know all of this
0: like <laughs> <laughs> Wait, yeah, I need a like piece of tape.
1: Have... Give me a piece of tape so I right can here, lift I got that you. fingerprint for the, from the X. <laughs> Give me that. And they're like, lift a fingerprint? What are you like, talking what about? What tape?
0: We don't have tape. Go to Home Depot and get me some Go tape. To Home Depot. <laughs> What's Home Depot? <laughs> Crap. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs>
1: Netflix, oh. call us. <laughs> yes, please. That would be awesome show. I want to do it. I'll do it. I'll act in it. And my sidekick will be a black cat that travels with me.
0: <laughs> in the little spacesuit and then the little the backpack. Little space suit.
1: <laughs> and they're like, who is this girl?
0: You're gonna get charged <laughs> with a crime.
1: I'll be, with, <laughs> I'll, I'll be burned as a witch. You're gonna be that weird woman.
0: <laughs> Nobody knows <laughs> like, this weird woman with a cat in a backpack.
1: <laughs> they're like, She's a witch. Get her you out of here. The family. <laughs> Great. So yes, that's Belisca. I feel
0: bad for the fa- I mean, I feel bad for like any murder victim, but especially like the little kids. Because like the little five year old, what are they gonna do? What is the point? It's like the Wolfort murders when they killed the two year old. Mm-hmm. What is the point of killing the infants
1: like that? That's why I have a hard time believing that it was personal and directed at Joe, because I think, okay, if Frank Jones just wanted to get rid of Joe, push him on the train tracks. Like there you go, your competition's gone. Like why yeah. take out his whole family? Yeah. Or if you like really if- want to hurt him, why kill everybody? It just doesn't make any mm-hmm. sense
0: yeah it's like i understand some people might say well you don't really witness this well nobody woke up sneak in sneak out i mean don't kill people to begin with but it just seems like it's it's too much to kill mm-hmm. the children like they're not a five-year-old's not gonna identify you in court like nobody's gonna that's why like, to me it word. seems it's just, unhinged it yeah, seems it is unhinged. that's
1: why i feel like Kelly could be a suspect possibly just cuz it just feels unhinged and frenzied and it doesn't make any sense like there's no direct motive to it it's just i'm going to kill yeah so that's that's kind of why i don't really think it was personal for joe i just think that him being the man he just took the brunt of all of it
0: yeah cuz he was the biggest and strongest he was he the biggest the and strongest defend the
1: most but i mean don't underestimate a mom whose children are being oh attacked. that's true mhm i mean
0: do you want to fight a grizzly bear? A, I was gonna
1: say that's a mama bear right there. <laughs> <laughs> like, yeah, you don't you don't mess with the mom. All right, I guess we should sign off.
0: Good episode.
1: Thank you. I hope I didn't bum everybody out, but
0: yeah, I'm pretty sure we're all sufficiently bummed out. I'm sorry. That's okay.
1: But it's a good story. It's a crazy story. It is a crazy story. Let's add it to our list to go there as well. Okay. We'll also over, sally go. house like this is like up there with sally house we
0: just need like the midwest like murder house tour to go see like what all happened although sally house is more like a paranormal thing that's
1: yeah murders we don't know what happened, it, happened at, they, know. they don't really know what happened in sally house yeah. but that's one place i do want to go it's just got that same vibe
0: midwest yeah. small house i think i'd be more scared of the sally house
1: oh yeah yeah. i am terrified to go into the sally house but i still want to
0: yeah Although I do like the perspective of going there with the attitude of like bringing happiness and joy back into the place. And then that's what you want to channel and ask for.
1: Because it's what the family deserves.
0: It is. It really is. Or
1: any spirits that are there, even if they're not family, like, but especially the family, they deserve to be remembered. Um, obviously, they're going to be remembered for their murder, but mm-hmm. it's important to remember them. It's a part of the history. And for yeah. Velisca, it's unfortunate that Vallisca's is known for this, but at the mm-hmm. same time, it brings people to Villisca. That's Otherwise, true. no offense to anybody who lives in Vallisca, but like most people probably wouldn't know about the town had this not happened. Yeah,
0: probably. I wouldn't. Like
1: hundreds and hundreds of other towns out there. Yeah. Not saying that I'm glad that the murders happened, but...
0: But you can turn, like, something, yeah, like, bad things happen. Sometimes you can control it. Sometimes you cannot. But when Mm -hmm. something, it's like making lemonade out of lemons. It's like, this bad thing happened in this place. What are we going to do with it? Like, let's Mm -hmm. at least find a way to make it be more positive and let people come away with a more positive outlook or perspective instead of, like, something so bummery. (laughs) Bummery. that's a new one we invent words on this podcast. Yes, we do bummery and nerder
1: nerder nerder
0: yep it's those nurses that commit murders you know
1: and i it's put home nerder. depot in the 1900s in illinois so all
0: well in the meantime if you guys have theories about the villisica axe murders you can email us at darker side of life podcast at gmail.com find us on instagram and twitter and let us know what you think tell us your story ideas <laughs> If you've been to the axe murder house, yes, tell us your experience and what you thought about it there.
1: Also, give us your ideas for our Netflix show. Yeah, please. Mm-hmm. Also, we need a it's name. Ninety-eight days until Halloween. You are Just starting the countdown. That. Oh, I started the countdown when it was three hundred sixty-five days. <laughs>
0: we are going to make paper chains when I come visit you in yes. September. <laughs> Little yes. orange and black ones. <laughs> you can help me get decorations
1: do. ready for for my apartment. <laughs> All right. Thank you, guys. Thank you. We love you. Love
0: you guys. We appreciate you listening. And we'll see you in two weeks. See you guys.
1: Bye. Bye.